My name is Bond. 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 James Bond. Look at Martini. Chicken and stir. Do I look like I give a damn? James, will you make love to me all the time in England? Day and night. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This is telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were a little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to thank all of you secret agent men back. You know what's true. What's that? Everyone is mysterious in their own way. And we are all capable of inspiring people to think that we are cooler than we are and ordering really badass sounding drinks and rocking a dinner jacket. And... In that small way, for a night, any one of us can be a secret agent man. Especially our listeners, because I have a feeling that they're all at least cooler than me. No, that's impossible. You're right. I'm pretty awesome. We want to thank all of you for coming back. I want to remind you that we can reach out to us on all of your social media outlets, such as Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at Just a Story Pond, through your secret decoder watch. Your little orphan Annie secret decoder rings. So disappointing. <laughs> Drink your Ovaltine. Also, I want to recommend that you check out our website, justastorypod.com, where you can find out more about each episode, find links to lots of sources, photo galleries, and also you'll find links to our merch store. That's where we keep things that you can buy to put in your house or on your body with our logos and artwork. And it's a fabulous place. You should go check it out. You can also find links to our Patreon. Da, da, da. Patreon is a fun way to support the show. We do mini-cast, mini-sodes, something like that. And you can become a sustaining member and be an official part of listeners like you. And one other way to reach out to us is the Urban Legend Hotline. That's right. And the number for the Urban Legend Hotline is 512-222-3375. And you can call that number and tell us about just about any old thing in the world. We'd love to hear it. And we so enjoy getting your calls. Every once in a while, we will use one of your calls as an inspiration for an episode. We've done that more than once. And we are always happy to hear from our worldly, cultured, silly, amazing listeners. <laughs> yes, we are. So, Sam, back to the movie at hand. Movie! It's a movie day! It's a movie we're going to do. It's just a movie today. Ta-da! Because it's never just a movie. It's never just a movie. That's so true. And in this case, it's 24 movies. It's a lot. <laughs> They're going to keep adding them. Don't worry. This will be wrong soon. Yay! <laughs> So today we are going to tackle the James Bond 007 series. So what is it about James Bond that makes us all so fascinated with him? He's Agent 007. He has a license to kill. He's one of the most popular heroes in the world. Not just Western culture, the world. 
He stands for adventure, masculinity, style, consumerism, <laughs> glamour. Consumerism? You're throwing consumerism in there. I am. Okay, all right. Alcoholism. You're throwing that one in there too. Yay! But also, you know, gadgetry, science, tech, mystery, he's, intrigue. He's really, I think that we've had a, a bit of a reawakening to the sharply dressed GQ fella who has all the t- latest gadgets and that kind of thing. Like, I think there was a moment where maybe he was not the pinnacle of active culture. Like, he was some kind of throwback. But now he seems very current again. Well, some of that is with the revitalization of the character in the Daniel Craig movies. I mean, he got a complete revamping. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah, he did. (laughs) But the movies are fun. They are entertainment. They are spectacles testicles wallet and watch yes (laughs) and they are ridiculous and that is some of the reasons we love them i mean you can look through some of the movies in dr no he travels through dr no's death maze fights off a giant squid it's very greek he's defending the earth from space lasers and diamonds are forever in a view to kill james bond starts off the movie by snowboarding down a mountain dodging gunfire with California girls playing in the background. Of course, in that movie, the titular villain is Christopher Walken. You know that he was eventually going to be a a Bond villain. He just had to be. There's no way he would make it through his entire career and not be a Bond villain. And then, of course, you have like Moonraker, which is James Bond beats Star Wars. Which is no. Yeah. Doctor, no. (laughs) In Goldfinger, you have Oric Goldfinger's plan to irradiate America's gold reserves in Fort Knox. That is like a Lex Luthor plot. Oh, a lot of them are. And there are real estate deals just like Lex Luthor in the movie. <laughs> the old one. And You Only Live Twice, which was actually written by Roald Dahl. Of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory fame. And BFG and Matilda and so many. And in that one, you have the villain Blowfield. You know, the guy that Dr. Evil is based on. He's That's bald. in You Only Live Twice. He's in a lot of the movies. Okay. But in this one. He has the cat. He has the cat in all the movies. The cat's essential. Originally, it was like in Inspector Gadget, which you only saw the cat in the hand and the back of his head. But eventually, he came out from behind his chair. With that awesome reveal. Like, I don't even have to remember it. I can imagine it. <laughs> because it's so iconic. It's become the classic villain reveal. No, it has. You know, in that one, Blowfield's trying to steal American and Russian spaceships with the help of a Japanese chemical corporation. For that one, you have Bond going undercover in Japan. He's training to be a ninja. He also gets this really awkward bath by scantily clad Japanese woman. It's it's incredible. And Sean Connery is hella naked in that scene. I'm just going to go on record and say Sean Connery is hella naked. Sam paused and zoomed that one. I was like, surely not. Surely not and he was like don't call me Shirley bitch I'm naked (laughs) one of the movies he gets married but don't worry she dies in like three seconds she's shot down pretty quickly many narrow escapes in Spy Who Loved Me he fights off Jaws the henchman with metal jaws yeah (laughs) by eventually smashing a lamp and electrocuting his teeth and then kicking him off the train that's very Peter Parker of him I do have to say it is and he does have these like clever escapes and plans. Ways of dispatching villains, etc. Yeah, it's not always just brute force. 
Oh, there's plenty of that. Don't worry. And of course, in Goldfinger, you have the famous laser to the crotch scene. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. <laughs> Everyone loves that scene. And then Oddjob, his, his henchman in the movie, the guy with the... Killer hat. Yes. Killer hat, which was very deftly spoofed in Meet the Robinsons, where the hat has a mind of its own. When Austin Powers is the shoe. Yeah. Oh, we could do a whole separate episode on Austin Powers movies. I think they're funny still. I'm embarrassed to say that, but really, I want to see you watch it and not laugh. All of you. I, like It's like Naked Gun. It's stupid as, as you please, but I dare you. I dare you to make it through the whole thing and not laugh. But from very, very early on in the series, there was a definite formula set up for these movies. It's true. And it seems like they are just wildly disjointed flights of fancy with a dashing leading man and some cute girls and some gadgets. But there's so much more to it than that. Well, there's a there's more to it there's than a that. Little more, yeah, there's right? more to it. So first of all, from the opening there's one of these things. There's this thing that happens in Bond movies that is very essential to a Bond movie. You dropped in the action. The cold open. Love it. The pre-credit cold open. We had you a cold open. We love a cold open. We really. fought over the cold open. <laughs> we have. And won. We won. I but won. <laughs> we won. It's still good. But we begin with this. We begin with the, the action. We're dropped in. We're there with him as he continues his life of daring do. And as soon as we've concluded our massive action set piece that is the cold open, we come to a very iconic Bond element. Yes, the iconic gun barrel opening. This began with the very first film. And Maurice Bender says, That was something I did in a hurry because I had to get to a meeting with the producers in 20 minutes. I just happened to have these little white price tag stickers and I thought I'd use them as gunshots across the screen. We'd have James Bond walk through and fire, at which point blood comes down on screen. That was about 20 minutes storyboard I did. And they said, this looks great. You have to love those happy little circumstances. <laughs> well, oddly enough, funny story, the first person we see as James Bond on screen is not Sean Connery. You're talking about Peter Sellers. No, I'm not. Talk- I could. You want me to? Not I love Peter Sellers. But no, I'm not. Uh, it's actually a stunt double who they had do the little walk through and shoot. And then Connery redid it later. Oh. And then you have, like, the music video that comes after it. Right. Psychedelic. There's sexy ladies. Words kind of projected over them often. So Daniel Kleinman says, It's my intention to set up the atmosphere that gives you little clues, little hints, but not be so specific. And then the first two movies, you don't get this. You don't get the the thing it becomes. is in the other, like, next 20 movies. Right. Literally. But Robert Blowjohn. I'm sorry. That's funny. That's a Bond name. His name is Robert Brownjohn. <laughs> I look forward to working with you, Mr. Bond. All right, Mr. Blowjohn. Keep it in your trousers. But he takes over for From Russia With Love and Goldfinger. So in From Russia With Love, we get our first girl kind of dancing thing. We get the, you know... Belly dancer. With the words actually going over her body like being projected onto her skin and he said he had the idea for this when his wife walked through the room in front of a projector oh she's scantily clad well i mean sure what's her name pussy galore no sissy blowjohn but normally this has kind of evolved over the years and it you know sometimes we'll get imagery from the movie 
the new series with Daniel Craig again takes this to like next level Photoshop Palooza, like awesome animation stuff. It's fantastic. It's really good. And you can't have this title sequence. Well, you did once, but you shouldn't again. You can't have this title sequence without the theme song. The specific theme song for, for each the movie. movie, yes. Like Live and Let Die. Are you singing Guns N' Roses? Stop it. <laughs> I realized the other day that the 80s was only remakes of, like, 60s and 70s songs. Like, the songs were not old enough to cover. I don't know what they were thinking. They were like, we have no ideas. We have no ideas. We just have hair. It's in our heads, too. And so the music for James Bond, in addition to the theme song, but the theme and everything really becomes the sound that is absolutely essential for espionage, for spying. It acquires a life of its own, but the theme song is utterly and totally important. It begins with Goldfinger. That's really when we get all the pieces of the Bond puzzle clicking into place. You'll see that repeated over and over again. It's when you get Shirley Bassey doing the theme song. Yes, and she does it. Lord, she does it. Now, the first two, one just had the James Bond theme music and Dr. No and From Russia With Love had a ballad called From Russia With Love, but it was just instrumentals. And they had a song with lyrics for the end credits. But when we get it as the opening number, that's Shirley Bassey. And it is such a weird, weird group of people that have done the theme songs to these movies. Oh, man. So, like, Tom Jones did Thunderball. That kind of works. Nancy Sinatra did You Only Live Twice. That works. And of course, Paul McCartney and Wings, whatever. He put his old the lady, lady in the, in the band. Did Live and Let Die. Carly Simon did Nobody Does It Better for The Spy Who Loved Me. Duran Duran did A View to Kill. Gladys Knight did License to Kill. In the new movies, you have like Madonna and Garbage in the 90s. And Tina Turner and Sheryl Crow. They weren't all like, yeah. <laughs> what? What? Not awesome. But in the new movies, they really are great. I mean, you have Adele. Chris Cornell did one, too. Yeah, and then you have Jack White and Alicia Keys doing this awesome little duo. And On Her Majesty's Secret Service didn't get the title lyrical treatment because it was really hard to work that into a song. Come on, you can make that dirty so easy. Oh, don't tempt me. But they had a theme that was played at the end, and it was one of Louis Armstrong's last vocal performances. Interesting. I want to hear it now. And the saddest thing about the songs is that they rejected a Johnny Cash song. For Thunderball. It's it's heartbreaking. I'm so sad. And if anyone finds that on the internet, send it to me because I need to know what that is. I need to hear Johnny Cash does espionage. So after this scene, we finally get back to Bond. It's been like 20 minutes. We've seen some ladies. We've read some names. We've rocked out. We've been shot. Yeah. It's been a long day. It's time for the briefing. Now, as it would be if we were actually being James Bond, the briefing's very important because it's really the last time we're going to revisit the plot. By the way, this is the plot. Please pay attention. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your service. So he usually goes in, meets with them. They chit-chat. He tells them, you've been doing very bad things, Bond. And Bond says, yes, but I'm awesome. And he's like, you are awesome. Here's your next job, Bond. And that's how that goes. Please pay attention to the plot. <laughs> Also, we get a little flirting with Miss Moneypenny, but as she's Miss Moneypenny, it's just flirting. We see M. M is the boss, right? Judy Dench. In the new ones. Uh, I can't, like, when I see a man doing M, I'm like, you're not. You're not, though. Because, like, she's so owned that to me. Like, she just... Of course, she's Dame Judy Dench. I mean, I kinda, she's a freaking knight. Like, if, <laughs> I kind of want to vote for her for something. Can we do that? 
We can't. Like, elect her to some sort of office? Anyway. Do they have elections for the queen? I don't remember. They should. No one wants to do it anyway. Then you get Q, the meeting with Q, where he always tells Bond, you need to be more careful, Mr. Bond. And Bond says, but I'm awesome. Here, have some explosive things. And that's the gadgets. The gadgets, which is one of the most fun parts of the Bond franchise, which they left out of the Casino Royale, which kind of makes me sad. It came back. It came back. They realized their mistake. I don't think they thought it was a mistake. I think they wanted to build him from the ground up so that when they tore him down, we would have to care more. But the guy they get playing Q is awesome. I love Q in the new movies. He's great. And then John Cleese played him in the 90s. John Cleese should play pretty much everyone. I'm actually okay with it. He and Judy Dench, like I'm voting for them. The next ticket for King and Queen, John Cleese and Judy Dench. <laughs> they may not like this idea. <laughs> and then of course, of course with Bond, of course with Bond, you need chase scenes. Well, yeah, I mean, he's Q is going to give him either like an Aston Martin or a, a Rolls. Rolls or a Lotus that turns into a submarine. Or explodes. That's a hell of an anti-theft. <laughs> device and of course the movies all feature very exotic locales this is near essential pretty much within this formula the only way to know that you've really changed films is to set it in a different place right and they they choose some odd settings like harlem it's exotic right (laughs) super racist yeah and japan too Uh, New, new orleans yeah Good try. Good try, buddy. But also, I mean, you've got to have those exotic locales so you can have a reason for all these girls wearing bikinis. Exactly. And wherever he is, Bond will penetrate the upper echelons of high society. This is essential. He has no time for the riffraff. He might make friends with the riffraff, but he's certainly not going to benefit from interacting with them. And he makes a point of, of saying that he's not paid a big salary. And this is just, you know, his cover. He is adopting this ethos as a cover. But we can admire him and like think he deserves to have these fine things because he so obviously appreciates them. Yeah, he appreciates a lot of things. Yes, he does. And we see this in like his taste for wine and scotch and his fancy suits and his fancy cars and his Rolex or his Omega. He wore a digital watch in the 80s, but we mustn't talk about that. Was it a calculator watch? It probably was. It was a Seiko. But <laughs> was it a Swatch watch? I have a Swatch watch. I love Swatch Watches. But then we also see a lot of campy humor in the films. And this is really a feature of Sean Connery that came through in Bond. It wasn't something that was really planned for. They didn't know they were going to be funny until they were. Well, he could tell like a dad joke and still be cool. Because he's fucking Sean Connery. He's got Sean Connery. He can do whatever he wants. I'm so sad he retired. Maybe he'll come out of retirement for the sequel to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. No, he won't. Stop it. That was terrible. That, you know, that's what like made him retire. I know it is. That's why it's terrible. And then, of course, you can't have the pinnacle of the cool hero without the dastardly villains. Their plans to take over the world or irradiate the gold or <laughs> create an underwater civilization after they flood all of the earth. Whatever the thing was with the moon, that was interesting. And then there are different variations of villain within the villain system for Bond. There are henchmen or lackeys. Right, they're the ones that he fights with at the beginning. Because we have to get to the kind big of boss. middle of the movie, yeah. yeah, before. Right. There have been some really memorable henchmen. Like Oddjob. Like Oddjob. Jaws. And then you get... The bad girls, the femme fatales. Oh, now this is a like branch under the Bond girl tree. 
Right, it is. And it's also under the villain tree, they share territory. And this began in Thunderball. We saw our first femme fatale with Luciana Paluzzi. And then we have the big bad, the real diabolical genius behind the scenes, who's been pulling the strings all along and reveals himself and has to make the villain speech the villain speech the monologue diabolique yes yes outlining his entire plan because bond is captured and he will die in a shark tank or he will die from a laser right and so while the villain is giving his villain speech that naturally gives bond a moment to either charm his way out of a situation or calculate some kind of magical escape plan either way tends to work out for him you see this also in batman the world's other greatest detective no but really the villains and the bond girls for me are the best parts of the movies i love bond girls like when i feel pretty i say that i look like a bond girl like like i think they're fabulous because they all have some twisty campy thing about them like they're basically like if they're a scientist, they're scientist Barbie. Like there's these incredibly simplified versions of femininity and they're just fun and puff. Well, they always have the most ridiculous names. Oh my God. Let's talk about the names. I mean, starting with the original Bond girl, Honey Rider, played by Ursula Andress. Her name is actually Honey Child Rider. Oh, that's even worse. worse. It's even worse. Or Pussy Galore. Pussy Galore is a fantastic name that everyone knows is terrible. Or Kissy Suzuki. Or uh, Zinnia on the Top. Yes. Or Octopussy. They're two different women. Wait, Pussy Galore is... Oh my gosh, you're right. Hmm. Hmm. Need a little more creativity there. As, as Christopher Hitchens called them, cock fodder. <laughs> oh God, Christopher Hitchens, stop it. <laughs> Stop it. Okay, but Ursula Andress, let's give her just a moment. Let's just take a moment and think about how iconic that scene of her coming out of the water in the bikini with the dagger in the seashells has become. It was so iconic, they redid it with Halle Berry in the 90s. And Daniel Craig, which is amazing. That's true. That's it's true. amazing. See, I forgot about that part. I didn't. <laughs> I know. As with the villains, we don't want to oversimplify these women because the movie's do enough of that already there are different kinds of bond girls you can have the original like helpmate assistant rising action bond girl right and these are sometimes different characters and sometimes the same you can have a femme fatale or a mark that's set out for bond that actually has some relevance to the plot sort of and they're usually either allied with bad people or they actually are bad people or they're being held captive by bad people, whatever. Under threat, under siege in some way, not just the hapless innocent. And then you can have his true love interest. You have the women that he seems to form a bond with. Really? Nope. Didn't mean to. It's completely accidental. Lots. No, it really was. I'm not Sean Connery. I can't pull that joke off. You sure as hell try every week. So she, you know, will be the object of his affection throughout the movie, and we are supposed to invest in her accordingly. Generally, we do not see the Bond girl repeat after she has been in a movie. She generally disappears. Yeah, she sometimes makes a good guest appearance. (laughs) Yeah, but he's not in any kind of a long-term relationship. That just wouldn't do. He tried. Yeah, they killed her. Mm-hmm. And then you get that she's scene. Just, she's just taking a little That's rest. That's so sad. Like, that really a is. A little rest. She's okay. And I'm like, this is not a feel good moment. <laughs> this is a feel bad moment. 
where the fuck is Sean Connery? <laughs> and another important element of the Bond films are the allies and the mentors, the friends he makes along the way, his brothers in arms. They generally are brothers. Because if they weren't, they would be Bond girls and he would probably fuck them. Sometimes they're like Americans and they're like shoddy versions of James Bond. Yeah, that's true. That happens a lot. Um, but they're also just kind of locals and any kind of like vigilante crime fighter he may come across or you know somebody who's also looking for the same person he is like the baker street irregulars like sherlock holmes yes like his army of street urchins and informants now a lot of times just to convey that the threat is real we might lose a bond girl or an ally along the way he suffers losses as he makes his way toward the big bad guy Big villain. The and mastermind. The mastermind. And he must confront the mastermind. This is absolutely essential. And we must see the villain dispatched in some sort of over-the-top, campy way. Sometimes, though, it's just really violent. Like, They're not always killed, though. Sometimes he just stops their plans and they escape to make another movie another day. To die another day? You only live twice, Sam. Pussy galore! I mean, what? <laughs> Even Jaws comes back after he's shocked and thrown out of a train. Yeah, he's been in a better mood lately. Well, he can't remember anything. And then we get the quirky ending. The quirky ending is essential. Also, it's this falling action. Generally, we see Bond embracing his girl du jour and making some kind of like, like double entendre, silly, happily next five minutes kind of statement. Right. And so those movies still hold to that core. Now they have been changed up a little bit. Uh, a lot. In the new movies, but they still have a lot of those big elements. But you have to ask the question, why do we still care? Why is he such a popular character? Or why are we still letting him get away with it is actually what I always think. No, it's true. So M even references this idea in GoldenEye. And this saying, is Dame Judy Dench yes, as M. Yes. So she's truly badass when she says this. Get the middle picture. I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. A relic of the Cold War. And a 1990s commentator felt that Bond had outlived his moment. You know, this is whenever we were going from Timothy Dalton to Pierce Brosnan. So no one knew what was going to happen. I think they saw Pierce Brosnan and they were like, no, really, we have to make another Bond movie. Like, to me, he just looks like Bond so much. Well, yeah, he was in Remington Steel. Yeah. And then he was even going to be Bond earlier, but he couldn't get out of his contract for that. Huh. But this commentator said... But then times have changed, and James Bond was of his time, a time when Britain and the British intelligence held a certain position in the world, a time when Johnny Foreigner knew his place, a time when beautiful women from other countries existed primarily to be seduced. Read Ian Fleming's books today, and they seem terribly snobbish, silly, and dated. The sun is set for good on Fleming's heyday, the era that produced James Bond. Ian Fleming? Right, that's who wrote the original James Bond books, and we'll get to him in just a second. And so these books are wildly popular and old stats, and the number of people estimated to have seen a Bond film runs into the billions. Wow. And has grossed more than $6 billion. And like we said, you know, they're fun, escapist entertainment. They're spectacle. But in the 60s, when the formula was established and Bond mania was really at its peak, it embodied certain aspects of the cultural revolution. It this new vitality of British pop culture, the prominence of science and tech, and changes in these sexual attitudes. 
And over time, he became this kind of mobile signifier. Like I said, things changed. At the time, he's wearing a digital watch in the 80s. Mm-hmm. The cars he drives, what he's wearing, the kind of woman he's with, where he goes. You mean they learn to talk in the later movies? They do. But he becomes this kind of floating cultural icon where he changes with the time to continue to reflect his, his core mission. You know, what is his core mission? Of being an aspect of whatever the culture and cultural revolution going on at that time is. That's a hell of a mission. It's his true mission. It's the secret mission. We must never speak it aloud. But he also has strong patriotic attitudes. You know, you see the Union Jack parachute and Spy Who Loved Me as of a perfect you example. Do, yes. But it's a strong British patriotism. Anything for queen and country. Even whenever he is praised by Tatiana Romanova for his resemblance to an American film star. He responds by barking, for God's sake, that's the worst insult you can pay a man. Oh, well. So whenever Ian Fleming began to publish his stories in the 50s, Britain was only just emerging from a long period of post-war austerity, uniformity, and it was beginning to be okay to kind of talk about luxury and style and wealth again without having... A bad conscience for, you know, all the people that died. So you started to see a return of the British conservatives to power. And it was more accepted for filming to be this kind of Churchillian pro-imperialist. Yes, that went dreadfully out of fashion after Churchill was gone. Yes, yes. But then some people do argue that it was one of the first international media phenomena of the modern age. And this can explain why it's such an integral part of American culture. I mean, I think you see him reflected in the emphasis on superhero movies now. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, where we have these kind of floating icons that have movies that are can be seen in and out of sequence and stand alone and have readily recognizable iconography and a certain feel to them. And, yeah, and they're also spectacles and they are, they are entertainment. So maybe this is the precursor to the House of Marvel. No, there definitely is an element to it, for sure. But with this, you can't go past that important point that he is the perfect Englishman. Even if he's Scottish. He's even Scottish in the books. He's part Scottish. Shh, don't tell. In Never Say Never, Nigel Small Fawcett tells Bond, M says that without you in the service, he fears for the security of the civilized world. That is a thing that will come up again and again as you look at the Bond films. He wants to preserve civilization as we know it. Civilization. And he is the peak of that high society ideal of manners and patriotism and idealism and perseverance. Even if he's a cad. Even the author of the James Bond books, Ian Fleming, foresaw these changes in global politics that were coming around. And when he was writing... He started to quickly move away from casting Russia as the villain. Interesting. He felt at one point that the Cold War might end in like two years, and these would be so dated. (laughs) (laughs) So that may not be accurate, but what he did see was interesting because he started to cast these like non-state entities. Which kind of moves them into the realm... I don't mean this in a, in a literal way, but into a storytelling realm that is akin to science fiction, where you have allegory to conflict rather than a literal spelling out of anything that might be cast as historical. It is true, but it's also interesting because now those are the main problems. Right. These kind of non-state entities, Al-Qaeda, cartels, things like that. Mm-hmm. 
but he creates Spectre. Which is a hell of an acronym. Special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, and extortion. Is that our new motto as the United States? Have we adopted it yet? Oh, that's not nice. So it's made up of numerous wealthy individuals who are all kind of behind the curtain funding this group, pushing it to affect global politics. And it's led by Blowfield, who acts as chairman to the shadowy organization. What do you think their board meetings are like? Oh, you, you can see it in the movies. If, if number two, it's just like in the Austin Powers movies, if you haven't seen this, like number two doesn't do it right, then they like electrocute him. <laughs> Within the novels, it's kind of a commercial enterprise, kind of choosing whatever side suits them. You know, they're trying to just kind of create conflict between two superpowers. I feel like this is what Alex Jones is afraid of. So yeah, it's like a shadow government organization. Yeah. Okay. The no government part. New world order kind of thing. So it's interesting to look and see about the man that created James Bond. He was a character in his own right. That he was. Now, a lot of people like to think that Ian Fleming may have been the entirety of the source material for James Bond. I think people are wrong. But as one of his old girlfriends said, the trouble is Ian was like one of Ibsen's characters. He was always waiting for something wonderbar to happen. I think the Bond books are his dream autobiography. And he was later asked on a radio program, is there much of you in it? And the author replied, I hope not. I certainly haven't got his guts nor his very lively appetites. Oh. That's not very true. (laughs) Now, Fleming was born in 1908 to a wealthy establishment family. He went to Eton, was removed by his mother placed in the Royal Military College at Sandhurst, where he also left in less than a year. He had got no commission, but he did get a good case of gonorrhea. Yay! See, the appetite thing is going to go away very quickly. So distressed by these antics, his mother packed him off to an Austrian school, the Tinnerhof, which was kind of a school for problematic rich kids. Oh, well, that sounds like it should have been its own series of books. It should be. It'd be great. And it was run by Ernan Forbes Dennis, who was a former MI6 operative. Interesting. And his novelist wife, Phyllis Bottom. Okay, I'm getting it. Phyllis Bottom. <laughs> Dear Lord. But they are cited as maybe one of his interests in espionage and literature later in life. So after he finally finished school and did a terrible job as a banker, he worked as a journalist for Reuters and reported from Moscow on the trial of British engineers accused of espionage. Oh, I know that. That's a good story. We'll tell that story one day. (laughs) It's such a good story. And through his connections, he was eventually introduced to John Godfrey, and he became a naval intelligence officer. Now, he was the personal assistant to John Godfrey, the director of naval intelligence. So, the dire- is that is that like M? Is he M? Kind of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely one of the characters that became source material for M. As his biographer said, he had no obvious qualifications for the role. <laughs> I like his biographer. Sounds like a no bullshit kind of guy. <laughs> His biographer is who quoted his girlfriend earlier, too. But he was quite the diplomat. Fleming. Yeah. And he served as Godfrey's kind of liaison between all of the other kind of departments. So if this is Mad Men, he's like Roger. Like he's handling accounts. He's like the guy that's bringing him out for steak and getting him wine and taking him to the strip clubs or whatever. Yeah, but he's got somebody on top of him. I mean. Ah, you're going to do that through the whole episode. 
Double entendres are very essential for Bond storytelling. Very true. One of his first accomplishments while working for Godfrey. Gonorrhea. No, that already happened. Okay, got it. Was something called the Trout Memo. Now, this was written- Sounds fishy. <laughs> now, this was written in 1939 and distributed to the Chiefs of Wartime Intelligence. It was credited to Godfrey, but everyone that reads it kind of knows that Ian Fleming wrote it. And in it, he compares the deception of the Axis powers to fly fishing. The trout fisher casts patiently all day. He frequently changes his venue and his lures. If he is frightened to fish, he may give the water a rest for half an hour. But his main endeavor is to attract fish by something he sends out from his boat is incessant. So this memo included 54 suggestions for trying to trick the enemy at sea. (laughs) And Fleming called these plans romantic red Indian daydreams. Oh, so he was he was a social justice warrior of his time, wasn't he? Oh, for sure. Now, he said at first sight, many of these appear somewhat fantastic, but nevertheless, they contain germs of some good ideas. The more you examine them, the less fantastic they seem to appear. This included dropping footballs painted with luminous paint to attract submarines, huh. distributing messages in bottles... From fictitious U-boat captains cursing cursing Hitler and the Third Reich. Sending out a fake treasure ship packed with commandos. We'll hear something like that again. Disseminating false information through bogus copies of the Times. So he's basically a Bond villain is what you're telling me. He's coming up with a bunch of Bond plot without a doubt. So you know the scene, the opening scene with the wetsuit, the Sean Connery one, where he takes it off and he's wearing the tuxedo underneath? Mm-hmm. That's based on a real mission. Nice. What about the one where he has a seagull on top of his scuba suit? That was added later. Now, as we get down to number 28, this was headed a suggestion. Not a very nice one. And the idea was to get a dead body, plant false papers on it, drop it somewhere where the Germans might find it. Operation Mincemeat. This is Operation Mincemeat. It later does become Operation Mincemeat. I love this story. Yes, this is a now famous-ish. If you read the kind of shit I do, it's famous-ish. <laughs> plot that was developed by the British to convince the Germans that the Allies would attack Greece rather than Italy in the Allied invasion of Sicily. So the British intelligence did obtain the body of Glenvor Michael, a tramp who died from eating rat poison. Oh, no. Dressed him in an office as an officer of the Royal Marines. Well, that was better than what he had on, I'm almost sure. Placed personal items on him, identifying his captain, William Martin, and placed correspondence between the two British generals, suggesting that the Allies plan to invade Greece and Sardinia, where Sicily is merely the target of a feint. Hmm. Now, originally, this idea was developed officially by Charles Cholmondeley in October of 1942, Most people think that it may have sourced from the Trout Memo, and even confirmation of the success plan sent to Churchill said, mince meat was swallowed, rod, line, and sinker. Why didn't he say hook, line, and sinker? You ask our British listeners. I don't know. Uh. So the kind of neutral Spanish government (laughs) apparently did share copies of the documents with the Abwar. I know all about the Abwar. That is the German intelligence. Yes, and before returning them to the British. Now... They were able to do forensic examination on it that showed that they had been read, and decrypts of German messages showed that the Germans fell for the ruse, and reinforcements were shifted to Greece and Sardinia before and during the invasion of Sicily. Sicily received none, and thus 
was quite easily ally invaded. Yes. Which was a huge, huge learning point for the establishment of the D-Day invasion. Okay. So the importance of intelligence work during World War II cannot be overstated. The amount of deception that went on, the level of plotting, the commitment to ruses is just absolutely theatrical and grandiose in scope. One day we will talk about Garbo. One day we will talk about the D-Day invasion. We'll talk about all of those things. But it is absolutely insane the links that they went to. There were entire outfits that did nothing but travel around and blow up inflatable tanks to deceive the enemy. This was a huge component of the Allied victory. Well, we'll talk about a few more of them. But oh, okay. before, before, I think it's interesting to note that Ian Fleming got the idea for this, what became Operation Mincemeat, from a spy novel <laughs> written by Basil Thompson. Basil. I'm almost sure it's You're Basil. Right. You're right. You're right. Now, Thompson was a former assistant premier of Tonga, tutor to the King of Siam, and made his name as a spy catcher during the First World War. He was head of Scotland Yard's Criminal Investigation Division and tracked down German spies in Britain, many of who were later executed. But you're right. You know, even, even Godfrey writes, World War II offers us far more interesting, amusing, and subtle examples of intelligence work than any writer of spy stories can devise. Because they sound too fantastical. They sound absolutely, yeah, okay, sure. Well, here's one. One other idea that Ian Fleming came up with was called Operation Ruthless. It was in September of 1940. I love this one. Now, this story most likely inspired one of the plots from From Russia with Love. So they were planning on getting an Enigma machine, which you know Alan Turing was excited about. Alan Turing was jumping up and down, like doing his fingers together, like, an Enigma machine was incredibly important for deciphering any intercepts from the abwehr. Yes, yes. And of course, Turing's development of what we now consider a computer. Wow. Was completely done trying to decipher the Enigma messages and he was later chemically castrated for it but we're not going to talk about that today we'll talk about that another day go watch the movie it's so good pause go watch it we're doing movies today people movies right, might as well. yeah. now ian fleming wrote pick a tough crew of five including a pilot a wireless telegraph operator and a word perfect german speaker dress them in german air force uniforms add blood and bandages to suit <laughs> Crash plane in the channel after making SOS to rescue service. Once aboard the rescue boat, shoot German crew, dump overboard, bring rescue boat back to English port. Easy enough, right? Easy peasy lemon squeezy. You know that the pilot should be a tough bachelor, able to swim. Bachelor, he says. That's what he says. That seems an odd specification, Ian. Whatever. (laughs) Now, Bletchley Park thought it was a very ingenious plot, and they procured a... Hinkle HE one on one bomber, some German uniforms, and they put the team together and took it down to Dover, awaiting a favorable moment. Guys, we're getting the band back together. Ruthless! But it never happened. Never happened. It was abandoned because they realized that they were going to crash the plane at night so the visual would be obscured, but then they realized that there are no rescue boats at night. (laughs) There were also concerns that the crew might be killed in the crash or or drowned before they were rescued. I mean, not on a movie set, right? Am I right? Yeah, that's what we should do instead. Now, he also worked with Colonel Wild Bill Donovan. I love Wild Bill Donovan. Now, that guy is a character. 
Yes, it's FDR Special Representative on Intelligence Cooperation between London and Washington. And he even accompanied Godfrey to the U.S., where he assisted in writing a blueprint for the Office of Coordinator of Information. It later turned into the Office of Strategic Services. Which later turned into the CIA? Yes. I know my spy history, you see. Now, he did have an Operation Goldeneye, where he established a network within Francisco Franco's Spain, when they were worried about a possible alliance between them and the Axis powers. I mean... It kind of worked. But they were worried that they'd go full force in. And so they could monitor information and sabotage and things like that. And it, it was established, but of course, never went to full fruition because Spain never went all in. Not like Japan. Right, right. <laughs> or the United States. So now one extremely successful group that Ian Fleming helped establish is called the 30 Assault Unit and later kind of turned into the T-Force. That sounds like something a 12-year-old made up. What is it? So in 1942, Fleming came up with the idea of to create a special unit of commandos tasked with stealing German intelligence. So, as he said, it was a mixture of brains and muscle. So some from the Royal Navy and some from the Royal Marines. Started with 40 men and ended the war with 25 officers and 30 men, split into three troops. Now, Rankin, who wrote a book on this, said a typical team would have a naval officer in charge, plus a technical officer or an attached scientist, a German-speaking officer, from the Royal Navy Forward Interrogation Unit and a Royal Marine officer leading a section of well-armed Marines with vehicles and vitally a wireless radio detachment. Now, Fleming did not fight in the field with these men, but he did kind of run it and helped later select targets. He was basically like a director and a screenwriter. He was the man behind the curtain. So they had many, many successful missions. And one of these was during the torch landings in North Africa where they did capture an intact Enigma machine and two tons of other valuable uh, documents during the invasion of Germany. I'd say that was successful. And later, the T-Force at Kiel in Norman, Germany, captured Dr. Helmuth Walter, the scientist responsible for using hydrogen peroxide as propellant for jet engines and high-speed submarines and captured a lot of information on the V-2 rocket development. Is this the beginning of Operation Paperclip? It's not exactly operation paperclip but it is definitely tied to it it's adjacent it's It's paperclip adjacent adjacent. yes like your thumbtacks everything has little boxes and everything's where where it goes in one place so what does a spy master do when the war is over what does he do after all the rousing successes and ticker tape paradeless wins and secret victories how does he comfort himself well he had visited Jamaica when he was 35 where there was a conference on German U-boats. It rained the entire time they were there. Yeah, and even though the weather was terrible, he fell in love with Jamaica and decided he was going to settle there after all this war business was over. Owen writer said Fleming loved Jamaica for its recreational activities. You can read into that. Yeah, you can. <laughs> it's Caribbean folklore. Basically his belief that it contained lots of buried treasure informed by his terrible four-penny horror habit. <laughs> and the king-like reception he got from the locals merely for being British. Remember that colonialism thing we were talking yeah, about? Yeah, he was a big fan. Big fan. Now, at the end of the war, Fleming told his friend Ivor Bryce he would relocate to Jamaica to swim in the sea and write books. And three years later, he did just that. He managed to secure two months paid leave each year from his job at the Sunday Times and built his home, Goldeneye, no. in Jamaica. No, Ian. 
Let it go, man. And this is where he started writing his books, originally publishing Casino Royale. Which we all now know as the first Daniel Craig movie. (laughs) And that movie is a lot closer to how the books are than the campy, like, Roger Moore Bond movies. Now, fun note, he did take the spy's name from an ornithologist, Mm. James Bond, who wrote The Birds of the West Indies. (laughs) That's funny. So about those appetites. The ones he didn't have. Right, right. That James Bond had that he didn't have. That's debatable. So other than being the man behind the curtain, he did have some Bond-esque qualities. He purportedly drank a bottle of gin a day. Good lord. And insisted his staff call him the commander. It's so Vanderbiltian of him. Well, that was his rank and it was Commander Bond's rank as well. Oh, well then. He was a chain smoker, reportedly an 80 cigarette a day habit. I don't even know how you would do that. <laughs> like, there, do you smoke while you sleep at this point? Like, are you just like... It's gonna be. I don't know. And then and what he, about the Bond girls? Tell me about the Bond girls. Were there Bond girls? Oh, he had quite a sexual appetite. We already talked about his gonorrhea that got him kicked out of school. And apparently he was quite a sadomasochist as well. Really? And one of his girlfriends said, no one I've ever known had sex so much on the brain as Ian. No. He was quite the misogynist, too. Oh, yeah, well. He once declared women to be like pets, like dogs. How cute that he said that. Outside the bedroom, he much preferred the company of men, whom he described as the only real human beings. He's absolutely charming. Went to throw a shoe at his face. (laughs) Speaking of. Who's quite the sadomasochist. No, he would like it. <laughs> and there are lots of recently discovered letters detailing these fun things, such as writing to his Austrian lover, Edith von Orpurgo. He said in these torn and partly in German letters, I would have to whip you. I would also like to hurt you because you have earned it. And in order to tame you like a little wild animal... Oh my god, that's like Warren G. Harding level kinky. Right? Right? Now, he did have this ongoing affair with Anne Charteris. And they first met in the late 1930s when she was still the wife of Baron O'Neill. Okay. So was she, like, titled? Oh yeah, and then she later divorced and married the Viscount of Rothmore, making her Lady Rothmore. Oh my. Now, this guy was pretty powerful. Rothmore, you mean? He was the proprietor of the daily mail Ooh, not some not an enemy you want to have but now even though she remarried she continued her relationship with fleming she would head off to jamaica where fleming was telling her husband she was going to visit the playwright noel coward who is known to be gay oh well he was her not beard interesting note yes dear ian fleming thought that noel coward should play dr no in the movie i don't hate it i don't hate it Now, he wrote to her, All the love I have for you has grown out of me because you made it grow. Without you, I'd still be hard and dead and cold and quite unable to write this childish letter. (laughs) Full of love and jealousies and adolescence. Now, Anne did get pregnant by Ian Fleming and had a baby girl who died shortly after birth. Now, when she became pregnant again by him is when she finally divorced the Viscount. Got a settlement of 100,000 pounds. He's like, go away. Goody for her. Well done, Anne. Now, Fleming and Anne did get married. Oh, I'm sure that went well. Swimmingly. About as well as Bond's marriages. Well, he'd always been kind of this confirmed bachelor guy. And he said that his anxieties about 
marrying Anne is what led him to create James Bond and start writing the novels. So it actually was honest to God escapism. Honest to God. He said, I was just on the edge of getting married and I was frenzied at the prospect of this great step in my life and having been a bachelor for so long and I really wanted to take my mind off the agony. No! And so I decided to sit down and write a book. Well, wherever you find inspiration, I guess... That's fine. Now, Fleming and his wife continue to have affairs, both of them. (laughs) I mean, is anyone shocked? Even after the birth of their son, Casper. Fleming had lovers including Millicent Rogers, an American oil heiress and fashion icon, and Blanche Blackwell, another society beauty, who was a neighbor of his in Jamaica. I'm sure she walked out of the water in a bikini with a knife. I bet she did. Once Blackwell planted a number of shrubs and bushes in the Fleming's garden, And when Anne found out about the affair, she uprooted all of them and threw them into the sea. (laughs) But Anne was also having an affair with the Labor Party leader, Hugh Gatskill, who was also married. What a tangled web we weave. Now, speaking of Bond girls, it's also claimed that Fleming had an affair with Christine Granville, the daughter of a Polish aristocrat who spied for Britain during the Second World War. And who was eventually murdered by a former lover in 1952. That's very Bond girl. Right? Now, later, Ian Fleming wrote, All history is sex and violence, and I think it's ridiculous to go on writing thrillers in the old bulldog drumming John Buchanan way when life has come up so fast past us. Bond has one girl per book, approximately. Ha! <laughs> like, the approximately. He's a bachelor, and he moves around the world pretty rapidly, and I don't see any great harm in that myself. I'm sure you don't, Ian. I'm sure you don't. <laughs> in 1962, he wrote The Spy Who Loved Me. And he really adopted this different literary style for it. Oh, did he? Yeah, it is from the Bond girl's point of view. Bullshit. And it's Vivian Mikkel. And Bond doesn't appear through halfway through the book. And it's considered to be extremely sexually explicit. God. It's like the only way I can imagine what it's like to be a woman is if there's so much sex that she doesn't think. Oh, he later claimed that it was the easiest one to write. <laughs> Did he think of a man and take away all reason and accountability? Jack Nicholson could play him in a movie. <laughs> like, really? Like, now he's like 80 or something now <laughs> and play Fleming when he was 50. <laughs> it's about how rude hard and put up what he was. <laughs> now, it was so destroyed by the critics. And he said he wrote it in response to this being read by kids and in schools. But he even demanded that no reprints or paperback editions be published. And this was honored until two years after his death in 1964. And he even wrote an open apology to the publisher. (laughs) Um, Seems I forgot myself for a moment or 300 pages. Whatever. So I went from one bottle of gin to three that week. And it seemed like a good idea at the time. You see, a terrible thing happened to my shrubberies. Snail escapism. (laughs) Perhaps this was an inside-my-head thought. And interestingly, you know, he had all of these terrible habits. I guess you can say Vices. appetites. Appetites. And you even see this in the Bond novels, where in Thunderball, James Bond begins to acknowledge his heavy drinking might be a problem, and in Her Majesty's Secret Service, he's definitely in the throes of alcoholism. But don't worry. He still wins. He still wins. Because he's awesome. So Fleming died in 1964 of a heart attack. Shocking. His, on his son Casper's 12th birthday. Wow, he really did go out with a bang, didn't he? And I mean, he was, like he, he was, was like, yeah. who can I annoy? He was 56 years old. 
In October of 1975, his surviving son Casper committed suicide at 23, and his widow Anne died in 1981 when she was only 68 years old. Now, as Fleming himself put it after the Bond books became global bestsellers, True Secret Service history is very fantastic, certainly no more or less fantastic than what happens in James Bond's adventures. Now, Peter Smithers, a colleague in the naval intelligence, said Ian constantly longed to be personally engaged in the excitement. He was of an essentially aggressive nature. It was the repression of all these desires by authority, quite rightly, (laughs) which, in my opinion, fired the imagination engaged in his book. I think it's awesome that he was like, he was denied all of these opportunities and he should have been denied (laughs) all of these good idea i mean this man basically had an iv of gin i mean the thing about ian fleming is that when you look at the at his compatriots the men serving with him in the intelligence service at the time it becomes clear that he's really neither the brains nor the brawn of the operation but he's something very important nonetheless and what's that He's the imagination. Ah, yes, the imagination. He suggests things that are implausible and impractical and doesn't really care. This is an idea. Not a very nice one. (laughs) But he seemed to really believe that he knew what a spy should be like. As he was writing that manual that you spoke about earlier, he wrote it out longhand and said it was a sort of imaginary exercise describing in detail the arrangements necessary for financing, paying, organizing, controlling, and training secret service in a country that had never had one before. And it included a massive practical detail on how much use could be made of diplomatic sources of intelligence and how agents could be run in the field, how records could be kept and how liaisons could be established with other governments. And he is purely conjuring this idea out of whole cloth. Like, he is making it up as he goes along. What sounds reasonable to him? Yeah, he's the imagination. He really is. And he even goes on to describe what the perfect agent is like. He says, He must have trained powers of observation, analysis, and evaluation, absolute discretion, sobriety, devotion to duty, language, and wide experience, and be aged around 40 or 50. That is the thing a young man says. Like, surely by the time I'm 40 or 50, I will be this person, I imagine. So, Ian Fleming was able to use his imagination, but also use his real-life experiences to create the ultimate Englishman hero, the man's man, the spy with a license to kill, Bond, James Bond. But without a doubt, he was not Bond. He was not Bond. He wanted to be Bond. But the thing is, as we dig through history, as, as we are wont to do, one finds that even though the Bond movies may seem ridiculous and the formula formulaic and the structure trite, maybe, maybe, just maybe, it may have happened. Maybe it's not just a story. And so with that, I'd like to introduce you to one of my candidates for the real life James Bond. Is he a suave Englishman? He is. Is he dapper? He is. Is he intelligent and daring and strong? He is. Is he a writer? He is. What? It's Roald Dahl. It's Roald Dahl, everyone. It's the writer of Charlie the Chocolate Factory. (laughs) Well, now he wrote the screenplay for Bond movies. He did. He did write You Only Live Twice, and it is terrible. (laughs) Pause. Don't go watch it. (laughs) No. It's like... Three minutes on YouTube and you're good. Go watch Goldfinger. Much better. It's true. So let's begin. Let's take our Bond formula and apply it to the real life adventures of Roald Dahl. Let's do it. So what's our first thing? What do we need first? 
We need our cold open. Okay, so picture it. The fighting's just broken out. It's World War II. And deep in the jungles of Nairobi, there's a young man working in the oil field. He hears the news, climbs into a vehicle, and drives 600 miles through the jungle to Kenya, where there's a Royal Air Force base, and says, good news, I'm here. What the hell are we going to do with you? Well, they really didn't know because he was too tall to fly planes, but that's what he really wanted to do. He was 6'6". That doesn't stop, James Bond. It doesn't. And they were like, okay, we'll just pull your knees up. And so they cram him in a little biplane, and he's flying a non-combat mission over the Libyan desert when he crashes headlong into the desert floor at 75 miles an hour. Now, despite the impact, he remains conscious throughout the incident because he's awesome. I guess his Union Jack parachute didn't work. I guess it didn't. Maybe next time. And he gets himself free from the straps and out of the cockpit just as the fuel tanks explode, which causes the machine guns to fire. So he's walking away into the desert with explosions and gunfire behind him. As sun sets and it gets dark in the desert. Yes, queen. <laughs> and country. Uh, now he does catch on fire. But he's able to put the fire out by rolling in the sand. Must have had a stunt double. He did. And he was picked up by British patrol that spotted the wreck. And when it became dark enough, they sneaked into enemy territory to check for survivors. Daring rescue mission. He's out. Now, after six months recovering in the hospital and a plastic surgery because he basically lost his nose, he desperately wanted to keep flying. He wanted to go back. Must have had serious brain injury, too. Maybe. Actually, one of Ernest Hemingway's wives, I can't remember which one, said that she found him very charming because he had a manner about him which she attributed to him having hit the ground. No wonder she liked Hemingway. He hit I the know. ground all the time. Right? And the RAF really needed pilots. So they were like, sure, come on back. And he took part in what would become known as the Battle of Athens. And they were not prepared for this. Like, it was really shoddy they never should have been sent in it was poorly planned mission it ended up resulting in the death of 13,000 men and he was there for two weeks in this very prolonged siege where they were going up as many as four times a day to engage but he did have like serious brain injury like he was always having headaches right and it became a really big problem when he was flying and the altitudes would change quickly so like whenever he was in the middle of a dogfight or whatever the pain would get so bad that he'd like pass out for a little bit oh no big deal for bond doll <laughs> Raw doll. Right? <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. It does. All right, so he has been in these epic dogfights. He has survived crash landing, emerging from a fireball after being caught on fire. He is now recovering, and now we have to get to, after our title sequence and our, our sexy ladies Ooh. dancing. Cut to the briefing. So after he's like pulled from service because they realize like they're able to watch him fall asleep or pass out and see the plane like not be piloted for a second. They're like, we kind of think this might be a problem. And he's like, it's just a flesh wound. He is informed that he will be joining the British embassy in Washington, D.C. as an assistant to the air attache. But when he hears the news, Dahl protests. Oh, no, sir. Please, sir. Anything but that, sir. But Balfour would not be moved. He said it was an order, and the job was jolly important. There's no way this is not from a script. Right? So cut scene, slide transition. Or you can do the plane with the dots, either one. 
Oh yeah, oh yeah, definitely. You could do that for sure. He was like walking past the Washington Monument. Whistling God Save the Queen, probably. Yes. 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 Or king, I guess now. King and country, queen and country. Whatever. Well, I don't know. Judy Dench, whatever. But in America, there was a very entrenched sense of isolationism. This was the order of the day. People did not want another war. Right. The vast majority of people were against entering the war in Europe. They thought that they were protected and safe on our side of the hemisphere. It's like a reverse Monroe Doctrine. And they also felt like they were cheated with World War One, They were tricked into going and that uh, we were sitting around with huge unpaid debts and the war to end all wars didn't did not end all wars. Yes. Didn't live up to the hype. We've all been there. Many in the government were referring to a phony war going on in Europe. No one was taking it very seriously. And there were agitators. There were Republicans and anti-New Dealers. The purpose of British intelligence in America was to sway public opinion, do a little advertising for the cause, and maybe some light black propaganda. Now, black propaganda is secret propaganda. Sounds bad. It is. It would be bad to be caught doing it. It's where you use a supposedly neutral source in order to disseminate ideas for a specific agenda. Such as drawing America into the war to help the British call. Yeah, that would not go over well with most Americans, especially in 1940. So Dahl's drawn into this, and he's also drawn into Washington's elite crowd. And he does not really particularly see the value of the work he is doing. It seemed to me a most unimportant and ungodly job. I'd just come home from the war where people were killing each other. I'd been flying around seeing all sorts of horrible things. And almost instantly, I found myself in the middle of a cocktail mob in America. On certain occasions, as an air attaché, I had to put on this ghastly gold braid and tassels. The result was I became rather outspoken and brash. Sounds familiar. So Dahl was not like most of the other men who were at the embassy at the time. Most of them were very privileged young men who had been packed away to America so as not to be packed into a plane to save their asses asses. it's kind of what the deal was and he was one of the few that had combat experience at this time and he stood out he was also a 6-6 welsh man who was of norwegian descent like he summered in oslo at his grandmother's house every summer and spoke norwegian as fluently as he spoke english now bond was scottish and swiss oh actually he was he said he was a quarter scottish so maybe that's a nod. I don't know what that is. But as we get a little into Dahl a bit more, we need to know this. He's kind of a dick. I mean, I just feel I have to be upfront with you. I found very little redeeming about him. Um, he's interesting and highly entertaining. But as Patricia Neal, his first wife, said, he seemed to feel that he had the right to be awful and that no one should dare counter him. And few did. But he found a home in the intelligence outfit that didn't even have an official name or cabinet approval. Not important. So the British Security Coordination, or the BSC, was actually given its name by J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover, you Nobody say. does it like Hoover. Mincing gate. And so they were not particularly fond of this moniker, but Hoover was not much for code names, which is unfortunate. English were very enthusiastic about code names, and so they referred to themselves as the Baker Street Irregulars, because their original address had been on Baker Street, and they were 
little street urchin informants helping detectives and whatnot. Perfect. So there's a book called The Irregulars by Janet Conant. And she says this of Dahl. With his reckless sense of humor and general air of insubordination, Dahl may have been mentioned to someone on high as having the makings of an ideal informant, if for no other reason that no one so badly behaved would have been suspected of working for British intelligence. That's fantastic. So, in his efforts to help the war get started, get going, gain muster and things, he became a writer kind of by accident. Really? Yes, there was a writer named C.S. Forrester who'd heard the story about his crash in the Libyan desert and wanted to use it as source material for a story. Was he like, I'll just write it myself? Basically. He was trying to like talk through it, and he kept getting details mixed up. And he's like, you know, if I can put this down on paper, it'll be much more clear. So just let me make some notes, and I'll send it over to you. And C.S. Forrester, who had really gained his cred as a correspondent during the Spanish Civil War, received his draft and wrote back you were meant to give me notes not a finished story i'm bowled over your piece is marvelous it is the work of a gifted writer i didn't touch a word of it and he passes it on directly to the saturday evening post and it's published as shot down over libya and dolls paid 900 dollars. so that happened three days after he made it to america the american dream it was and then he started working on his story which he called gremlin lore which, you know, is focusing on those, those gremlins that supposedly were messing with the Air Force's planes and mm-hmm. making them malfunction. And it was actually optioned by Walt Disney. And there is some fantastic conceptual work online. And it was kind of autobiographical. And Disney even cabled Doll confirming that the gremlins had potential saying, I believe it has possibilities. We'd be interested in securing this material. They went out to L.A. to assist in the production. It was going to be a full-length animated movie. Now, when he arrived in Hollywood, he was noted in the gossip columns, and Leonard Lyons quoted an earnest-sounding doll, of course, touting that party line that he was sent over to do, saying, we're doing this because the Gremlins are part of the RAF. Now, Disney was unable to fully secure the rights, and so they published a book, in the lead up to the release of this film. And this is kind of what you can see now, seeing that early kind of conceptual work. And the reason it was so difficult for them to do the production is because in the original agreement, they'd said that the RAF could sign off on every bit of the film, like had direct veto power. And that proved really difficult to do. Couldn't imagine why. Right. But, you know, they did go up to Canada and see one of the bases and they did like do flying demonstrations for Disney and it was like a whole big thing. And it was being very talked up in many magazines and stuff at the time. People were excited about this film, but it just proved too difficult. And there's a short, I think. Well, there's the very early Bugs Bunny cartoon with the gremlins. Which just stole the idea. Pretty much. Yeah. But I grew up with it. It's fantastic. Now, we are introduced at this moment in our our leisurely stroll through Washington with him doing his work and accomplishing his mission. We are introduced to a few of his allies, and they are a cast of characters. They have to be. They have to be very stereotypical, very helpful. What do you think, if you're English especially, what do you think Americans are like? Cowboys. We've got one. Hell yes. (laughs) So he meets Charles Marsh. And he's a Texan newspaperman who's kind of a generation older than Dahl. And the Dahl's father died when he was young. And so he really did become a father figure for him. Now, this guy is the publisher of the Austin American and the Austin Statesman. 
Our current newspaper yes, in Austin. And he also really longed to be a kingmaker. Like, he wanted to have political influence. Oh, my God, he wanted to be Hirsch, but not Hirsch. And so he was very good at keeping tabs on what was going on in Washington. And he had this mansion on R Street. And many New Dealers and politicos would just stop by there after work for drinks. And it was kind of a revolving door of power players in D.C. But definitely the Democrats. Definitely the liberals. Upon meeting Dahl, he was instantly impressed with him. And later, his daughter, Antoinette Marsh Haskell, said, We all just adored him, especially my father. We sort of adopted him. And Conant says of Marsh, Having given himself permission to enjoy an unchecked existence, both materially and emotionally, he encouraged his young protege to follow his example. He was an enthusiastic proponent of plunging into life with both feet, committing oneself fully. Damn the consequences. He championed a sort of super-American Whitman-esque belief in pure spirit, boundless possibility, and what he called the unshakable bit of divine moving from the embryo to the death in each of us. Poetic cowboy. Oh my god. He's very Whitman-esque. That's probably did, an apt description. Did he tell him that around a campfire? or? Oh, over Brandy's in the oak-paneled study. Oh, I forgot his Bond movie. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So at this time, one of the kings he's hoping to make is this young Texan politician who's a freshman congressman at the time. Lyndon B. Johnson? That's the one. And he has thrown himself behind Johnson. He's actually instrumental in setting him up with like real estate and oil wells and things like that and kind of lets Johnson get his money. And he's also working very closely with Vice President Henry Wallace. Who was very instrumental in kind of a lot of the New Deal. Prior, he was Secretary of Agriculture. Okay, and Wallace, let me explain some things about Wallace. Wallace is kind of a proto-hippie before we know what to call them or what to do with them. And he's very controversial, but Marsh is very good friends with him. Now, Antoinette, Marsh's daughter, later said, Of course my father knew he was a spy. They talked about it, and my father said, Look here, we're on the same team, and we can help each other. It's like Bond's always undercover, but everyone knows that he's a spy. <laughs> Marsh took Dahl under his wing and gave him the benefit of his years of experience in Washington politics. He had a veteran newspaperman's instinct for the inside scoop, a nose for bull, and an appetite for Capitol Hill's scuttlebutt. Marsh was on a first-name basis with everyone in town who mattered, and he knew about the skeletons in their closet and the scandals in their home states. And if he didn't have all the answers, he knew who did. And more often than not, he offered to place a call. He was an invaluable source for Dahl, a walking, talking encyclopedia of Washington life, from the stiff state dinners and the senatorial committees to the unofficial hotel room conferences. So he was kind of his guide through the Washington aristocracy he was he very much was and he would go to the trouble of getting a read from wallace and relaying it to Dahl. and in one such incident right before the conference at yalta they were very worried that the president was going to say he was checked by congress and couldn't go further into the war or things like that or that he had to pull out or any of they were worried they were worried about fdr and so this is a letter from marsh to Dahl describing the lay of the land as he sees it. The fact that Roosevelt is believed to have consented to the Russia-British agreements but refused himself to consent because of the constitutional limitations does not mean a thing in the finals as far as Roosevelt is concerned, as it is mere finesse. He merely let the British get into the water first. He expects to get in at the proper time in the Russian bath with Stalin. 
and then in a three-way scrubbing match with Stalin and Churchill. And if this was a real Bond movie, that would happen. <laughs> and then there's also Bill Stevenson. Now, he was the big Bill to Bill Donovan's little Bill. They literally called them Big Bill and Little Bill. Clever. Right. And he is another character that is often cited as an inspiration for M because he and Fleming had a good working relationship. Now, Bill Stevenson is the fellow that is referred to as Intrepid. His essential biography is a man called Intrepid, and the Intrepid Society is named after him, and he's been knighted. And when Winston Churchill recommended him to be knighted, he wrote, this one is very dear to my own heart and script out beside it. No, I didn't know Canadians could be knighted. I learned something new today. Yeah. But he was a World War One flying ace and a self-made millionaire by the time he was 30. No, wait, why is he a millionaire? Well, the story goes <laughs> when his sop with camel was damaged by enemy fire during a battle, he managed to land his out of control plane and mad as hops jumped into another machine and took out two more Germans. He was awarded Britain's Military Cross and Distinguished Flying Cross, as well as France's Legion of Honor and Croix de Guerre with Palm, like Cherami. But the story goes that when he finally crashed and was captured by the Germans, well, he of course organized an escape from the POW camp. Of course. I mean, he's the ultimate hero. And so he also pocketed a can opener from the POW camp, and he brought it back to Canada, patented it, and turned it into a commercial success. Well, look at that. So he paired up with Dahl to help push those Anglo-American relationships forward. Mm-hmm. Because the ultimate mission is to get the U.S. into the war. And keep them there. But Stevenson was unreasonably good at his job. He was kind of a mad genius. So one of his early campaigns involved getting the Hungarian astrologer, Louis de Vol, who had previously been an astrologer for Hitler, to make some prophecies. This is like the Bond girl that read tarot cards. Oh, well, she could only read tarot cards as long as she was a virgin. Oopsie she couldn't oopsie. read tarot cards at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Jane Seymour, naughty girl. But he got Duvall to prophesy Hitler's imminent doom. And this was done to undermine public confidence in Nazi invincibility. Hey, they're using magic. We might as well, too. So in 41, he staged a press conference where the astrologer unveiled his predictions. And it showed that Hitler's fall was certain. And then Stevenson went another step forward and had the revelations become tabloid fodder. And, you know, further installments were added over the next few months. And then he made sure that the predictions were repeated by other soothsayers, like an Egyptian astrologer in Cairo and a Nigerian priest in a remote village. And then he even went so far as to make sure that one of the prophecies would come true. How do you do that? Lie is lie. I think he kind of may have lied a little. Like he said that an ally of Hitler's would soon go mad. And this was fulfilled 10 days later when a French naval officer who escaped from Martinique reported that the island's Vichy French governor had gone insane. It must all be true. And he was also very smart because he used his agents to target ethnic minorities with anti-Hitler, pro-British, pro-fighting messages. And he did this in the Catholic community and the Jewish community. And I mean, like, really, it's not hard to drum up support in minority communities against Hitler. But he did it very 
well and was tuned into it. Like he picked up that that avenue was there. Now, he also oversaw the creation of a map that showed the imminent threat brewing in South America. And the map was made to look like it was printed in Germany down to the ink and the font and the thickness of the lines. So was this like what the Nazis were planning on doing, like the areas they were planning on conquering? Yes. And it was all South America and they all had German names. It was all divided up into territories, etc. And so with this, the Western Hemisphere began to look a little less safe. Right, because all the isolationists were constantly telling that we should take care of the Western Hemisphere. The Monroe Doctrine, old school, we are safe and secure over here. Let Europe fight it out. Right. But on March 11, 1941, the president made a dramatic announcement during his Navy Day radio address, revealing that he had proof that Hitler's plans for conquest extended across the Atlantic Ocean. I have in my possession a secret map made in Germany by Hitler's government, by the planners of the New World. It is a map of South America and part of Central America, as Hitler proposes to reorganize it. He goes on to describe some of the features of the map, including the Panama Canal and Germany's plan to carve up the region as vassal states. That map, my friends, makes it clear that the Nazi design not only against South America, but the United States as well. That map, my friends, makes it clear that the Nazi design not only against South America, but against the United States as well. And you'll keep hearing those phrases throughout this argument that we're the fifth vassal, the fifth column. Oh, they'll be around. And Stevenson was always famously one step ahead of the game, according to legend. A few days before Pearl Harbor, he sent a coded telegram to the London office that Japanese attack was imminent. And as the foreign office was not in any possession of any corroborating evidence, rumor, anything, like this seems like it's coming out of nowhere, they're like, um, cite your sources. And Stevenson telegraphs back the President of the United States. Now that's just a story. But it's a good one. (laughs) And then we get the compatriots. We get the men on the ground. And these are my two favorites. I picked from a lot of them. So one of the more interesting men that was a compatriot of Dahl's was David Ogilvy. And he worked for Gallup polling during its early days in Cambridge and would eventually become a very dapper advertising agent. Like Don Draper? It is rumored that he is the inspiration for Don Draper. And he knew that he had a gimmick. He knew that he had a great accent. And so he just fully embraced the English Just played it thing. up. I love it. And he would wear like a wool cape over tweeds down Madison Avenue. And he was apparently quite the character. But he went through training at Camp X, which was a training institute in Canada. And the story goes that Ogilvy and his fellow trainees donned army fatigues designed to help maintain the facility's cover as a regular army base. And they attended lectures on the new high technology of espionage, from the use of codes and ciphers to listening devices, and observed awe-inspiring demonstrations of silent killing and underwater demolition. They also received some limited practice in how to use a handgun and shoot quickly, accurately, and without hesitation. Ogilvy said, I was taught the tricks of the trade. How do you follow people without arousing their suspicion? Walk in front of them. If you push a pram, 
This will disarm their suspicions still further. I was taught to use a revolver to blow up bridges and power lines with plastic, to cripple police dogs by grabbing their front legs and tearing their chest apart, and to kill a man with my bare hands. Now, this is maybe just a story that Ian Fleming at least visited Camp X. He did visit. It's no one knows for sure. It's kind of disputed. But Ogilvy described the purposes of espionage thusly. Every human being has his weakness. In war, or in a very tight political struggle, both sides try to discover and play on these weaknesses. By identifying those susceptible, you can clearly become aware that the enemy will attempt to play on such weaknesses and take what steps you see fit to counterplay. And Ogilvy was quite a funny man. He re- regarded Secretary of War Henry Stimson as prissy. Only an Englishman can say that. It's amazing. It's also disputed that Roald Dahl may have trained at Camp X. We don't know if he trained. He definitely went to the facility. That's He would later compile Stevenson's like super top secret history. Stevenson wanted all the original documents destroyed. And so he gave Dahl access to them to compile the story of the secret war in Like a black book. Yeah. And they called it the Bible. I mean, like, really. Of course. But, yes. It was the King James Bible. Meh. King James Bond Bible. KJB. But Ogilvy was particularly certain that Americans were hopeless at espionage. They made terrible spies. Americans make terrible spies, he thinks. Ian Fleming agreed. No, they did not mind being the beneficiaries of such skullduggery, he was quick to note. But he called the FBI agents flatfoots and said that they were only good at playing cops and robbers. <laughs> and then last but not least, our man Ivar Bryce. Ivar Bryce, if you will recall, is the one that Fleming told, I just want to go play in the ocean, type on my typewriter, and look at my beautiful shrubberies. He's become a Monty Python character to me. I'm sorry. And Ogilvy introduced Bryce to Dahl. And Bryce was a person who'd gone to school with Fleming. You see, they're all in cahoots. And I believe they're all forming the uh, primordial James Bond ooze at this very moment. For sure. Ian Fleming took each part of each person he liked. Yes, he very much did. And so rumor has it that Bryce was very much the physical inspiration for Bond. Yeah, I mean, Ian Fleming has a drawing he did of Bond that looks exactly like him. It's uncanny. A little man crush. Li- I mean, ca- even Sean Connery would have a man crush. <laughs> well, you know, I mentioned Christopher Hitchens earlier, mm-hmm. and he writes this ridiculous article about Bond. Does he Ian say Fleming. it's because he's gay? Does he say he oh, wrote- of course. Yeah. This is like mm-hmm. anal retentiveness and about how he always describes ladies' bottoms like men's bottoms. <laughs> It is the most ridiculous thing. Christopher I've Hitchens, ever read. come on! <laughs> at, I love you. At some point, you're just you're just trying to be a dick, <laughs> which he always was. He was, and an ounce of pretension's worth a pound of manure. He was more than a pound of manure. I love him, but I love the way Conant describes Bryce. She says, "Burglar Bryce, one of the many names by which he was known, was an old school chum of Fleming's and quite a colorful character in his own right." Tall, dark, and handsome to the point of absurdity, he looked like an Aztec prince and was often mistaken for a film star. What a terrible thing to say to a man! But he was born to European nobility and radiated a languid ennui 
of someone who had never had to work for a living. His great-grandfather, founder of W.R. Grace & Co., which he sold for a huge sum. As Lord Mountbatten reportedly said of his distant nephew, it's terrible the advantages he's had to overcome. Dahl found his good-mannered affability charming and thought him kind, if rather lazy. And so Bryce is initiated into this odd little fraternity, this irregular little fraternity, in a very interesting way, along with his cousin, Bunny Phillips, who is a man. His parents hated him. (laughs) Or he just really, really liked rabbits. So a set of orders arrived with a top secret seal together with a small pillbox in a thin cardboard packet. As Bryce recalled, he decoded the instructions to be opened by G140 or G142, that's him and Bunny, when alone and in secure quarters. Filled with curiosity, the cousins hurried back to Volta Place and emptied out the contents of the two packages onto the kitchen table. They contained one ample full of yellow viscous liquid and one hospital syringe and a set of directions for their use. You are to run a test between you to familiarize yourselves on the effectiveness of the accompanying drug, a drug newly developed by London Science Section, which when properly administered, is capable of causing the subject to answer questions addressed to him truthfully, immediately, and with complete frankness. So they draw straws to see who's going to take it and who's not, who's going to interrogate. And Bunny draws the short straw and he's going to take the drugs. They've been informed that they need to put it in something fatty. So they get some egg salad and inject the egg salad (laughs) with truth serum. Was it an egg salad tea sandwich? The crusts were cut off. They're not animals, <laughs> except Bunny. Bunny's an animal. He watched his cousin swallow the doctored food and then studied him closely for the first sign of giggles. After a few minutes, Bunny was shaking with laughter and seemed on the verge of revealing the deepest secrets of his love life. He was in the midst of a prolonged affair with Lord Mountbatten's wife, Edwina, when he suddenly turned white as a sheet and collapsed. Bryce was sure he'd poisoned him with an overdose. As he watched, his cousin's face became lettuce green, and he did not appear to be breathing. Terrified, he frantically felt for a pulse and tried to work out what to do. This is the don't tell mom, don't tell mom, don't tell mom. Running to the telephone to make an emergency call was out. Security, even unearthing the most reliable security check medical man in Washington, was out of the question. The drug was top secret and could under no circumstances be observed by anyone but us. The night passed and filled with horror. Finally, around dawn, his cousin regained consciousness and woke up with a splitting headache, but otherwise seemed to suffer no adverse effects. Dutifully, following their orders, they told no one but Stevenson about their ill-fated experiment. Stevenson informed them that the wartime drug was a prototype of the wonder antiseptic pentothal and was being developed as a useful tool for extracting secrets from the enemy. You know, sodium pentothal is the real name for true serum. I really was expecting to say it was like a placebo effect. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been amazing? So we have our great Englishman spy, Roald Dahl. He has been drafted into the BSC to help with his secret mission to push America into the war. The new war to end all wars. Again. Again. Ignore the first one. Everyone does. Uh, now they do. He has been set up in Washington. He has his allies, his group of men helping him, including Marsh, our Texas newspaperman, wannabe kingmaker, 
man on the inside of the Washington aristocracy. Then you have Stevenson, Mr. Captain Canada. The mastermind. The great spy, also inventor of the can opener. And then David Ogilvy, the master propagandist and ad man. And Bryce, a fellow spy to help him along the way. Right, that dark Adonis. <laughs> so we have all uh, our pieces set up. And as we walk out of our briefing... As we walk out of our briefing, we must have a brief moment with Money Penny. Of course, a little double entendre. And there were a slew of secretaries. Marsh would often promote people from secretary to mistress and was very candid about doing so. Like how you say promote. It's what he said. <laughs> of course he did. I'm promoting her from secretary to mistress, he said, of his third wife before he promoted her to wife. <laughs> and all had all of his favorite secretaries. And eventually, when he was... Healing up after a back surgery in Marsh's home, he became very infatuated with one of his daughters who was helping nurse him back to health and proposed and she said no because <laughs> she had sense. And so we have our little money pity moment. We have our little moment of levity with our secretarial pool. Now is the time that we must meet with Q and get all of our gadgets for our mission. Now, Roald Dahl was not as big into the gadgets as some of his compatriots. Really, only Ian Fleming. Well, and Stevenson. Stevenson. Oh, Stevenson loved a gadget. I mean, for God's sake, he stole a can opener when he was a prisoner of war because he thought it was cool. But Ian Fleming was completely captivated by Stevenson's elaborate setups and vast array of sophisticated equipment. He had accumulated, especially his mechanical ciphering machines. Finally, he found someone that appreciated this kind of stuff more than he did. Through this, it helped them develop a really significant relationship and friendship. So at Camp X, Stevenson had an array of items. It was a spy's dream, or at least Ian Fleming's fake spy dream. They had foreign-type clothing for agents dropping into countries. And the tags and things in them would be in the proper languages. Had collections of gadgets and other items from currency to whiskey to cigarettes to fly buttons containing tiny compasses and beautiful maps printed in silk. That way you could just shove it in your pocket and it wouldn't get wrinkled. Yeah, no, that was actually, there are some really important missions because of that. And that's kind of what the, the D-Day soldiers had that on fabric. It seems like such a silly thing. You know, like it seems so arbitrary, but think of what a pain in the ass folding up a map would be. Now, when the Germans discovered that men's fly buttons hid compasses, which screwed into one half of the button, the British inventors reversed the thread, and this fooled the Germans into believing the buttons were normal. Stupid Germans. There was li- lipstick tubes that concealed daggers, a poison gas fountain pen, a hollowed out book with a revolver inside. Does this all sound familiar? <laughs> Very Bond-esque. Now, other than Camp X, Stevenson also operated another important branch of his BSC, which he codenamed Station M. M? For magic. M for M. Or M. I'm saying Stevenson's probably M. I think there's more than one source for all of the characters. Okay, fine. But they create all kinds of devices for their agents behind enemy lines. At Station M is where they developed all these things. The compass buttons, the silk maps. They were also where they got their papers. Ah, their forgeries. Their visas and passports and even currency. And they also manufactured clothing that was so authentic that even the Gestapo could not detect as foreign to their region. 
Everybody talked about the truth serum that they were developing, the cipher machines that Ian Fleming was impressed by. So you can see the inspiration that Ian Fleming drew from this character and from some of the crazy gadgets and schemes that we're already, we've already talked about some. Now, another integral part of our Bond formula is the chase scene or the mad caper. Yes, because sometimes it's like on a train, it's through the water, in scuba suits. Sometimes it's just at the dead of night. Now, famously, Ian Fleming was basically allowed to do a ride-along on one of the BSC operations. And it was a black bag job, which is, you know, where they break in somewhere and try to make it look like they didn't break in anywhere. And they broke into the Japanese embassy. And we talked about this on our Conspiracy Theories episode. Now, BSC... Had headquarters at Rock Center, and luckily so did the Japanese consul. And so they got a janitor to help let them in, and they went in after everyone was gone for the evening, gained entry to the safe, and they made microfilm copies of all the code books. And before morning, everything was returned to the safe, put back in the exact place, nothing looked out of sight, no one was the wiser that they had been in there. And this was kind of a springboard for a lot of flights of escapism for Fleming. This was his glory moment. He didn't have glory days. He had a glory moment. It's glory night. This one time. This is the story he would tell every, every time. time. Give me another bottle of gin. I think you've had enough. Oh dear. You smell like juniper berries. So I was reading this account of the Baker Street Irregulars time in the United States and I was waiting for my chase scene and I thought for a moment that I was going to have to stick to telling you about how when FDR would get in his fitted out Ford that had custom grips instead of pedals, he would try to outrun his bodyguards. <laughs> That's amazing. He never did. But it's quite funny. He sure as hell tried. He sure as hell tried. Instead, I have for you a story about Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> I'll take it. So the air ministry, in its infinite wisdom, decided that Hemingway was going to need to be looked after when he was sent over to cover D-Day. Of course. What a better correspondent. Right. He was a wartime correspondent. And so they gave him to Dahl. So Dahl and Hemingway hung out as D-Day percolated. They did. And Dahl noted that Hemingway insisted on calling the capital city dear old London town, though it was his first visit. Still, it was still dear old London town. Dahl was alarmed to find that Ernest Hemingway was very involved with an eyedropper and a bottle of hair regrowing lotion. Is that a euphemism? No, it's not. They wanted him to shave before they let him go, representing the United States and Britain, and he told him that he couldn't shave his beard on doctor's orders, and Dahl assumed that he wouldn't shave his beard because he had a rare skin condition, he told them. Too much sun. Cancer. He was sure. <laughs> Had to keep his beard. Don't Google it. But... Dahl realized that he was very worried about losing the hair on his head and had kind of grown this beard to compensate. And so one night he walks in and finds Ernest. He says, why the eyedropper, Ernest? He says, to get the stuff through the hair onto the scalp. But you don't have much hair. Dahl replied. He was such a dick. I have enough, he responded. (laughs) So there was no way to keep Hemingway out of trouble. And Gellhorn, his wife, was away. And she was actually making her way there on a freighter. It was the only way she could get permission. She was like the only person on the ship besides the captain. And it was a two-week crossing. Things were not going well for her. But in her absence, he decided to go to this party 
at the home of photographer Robert Kappa. And he and his little brother, Leicester, insisted on giving a sweaty demonstration of their boxing prowess. Stop it. These men are just too masculine for me. (laughs) And so after everyone was good and drunk, this doctor offers to drive them home. They made it less than a mile when the driver blacked out and collided with a steel water tank. And Hemingway's head collided with the windshield, and he had to be pried from the wreckage. He and the car's other passengers were rushed to St. George's Hospital. Hemingway suffered a concussion and later boasted that the doctors needed 57 stitches to tidy him up. Now, a dispatch went out that the famous author had died. Oh, no. In a blackout accident in London. And the story was picked up, of course. And it was a whole day before a correction was printed. I like how one of our big scenes in our movie is when Dahl and Hemingway are hanging out. There's a fist fight and a car wreck. It's as close as I could get to a car chase, okay? Now, his son, Bumby, was stationed in Italy, and he believed that his father had died. He saw the news and went on an incredible bender because it was a family tradition, goddammit. And so Gellhorn finally gets to the hospital where Hemingway is after she's been on the freighter. But instead of rushing to his side, she just burst out laughing. And they end their marriage. I'm sure it was a long time coming. I'm sure it was, too. But I found it intensely amusing. Like, that's a really bad day. Like, it all starts with good fun and fisticuffs, and it ends up with a divorce. And your son thinking you're dead. Isn't that life? So, like I said, that's as close as I could come to a car chase. Just Hemingway bursting his head open. And FDR trying to elude his bodyguards. Now that sounds like a car chase. But you need fisticuffs, too. You know, we didn't put that in the formula. There has to be, like, these fisticuffs with just these minor kind of henchmen. Why can't... Hemingway is Hemingway... definitely henchman material. Yeah, definitely. With his eyedropper, he would use it to, like, poison people's drinks. They'd call him Tincture. I was going to say they'd call him... They would call him the old man in the sea. Or just the old man. The tonsillar terror. So we must discuss, now that we have our fisticuffs in our chase scene... Our mud and our blood and our beer. Yeah, the next scene's he he cleans up. He puts his tux on and he goes and goes to a fancy casino or somewhere like that and is having drinks and playing cards. How about with a manor house society? In sure. Virginia. I guess so. I wouldn't exactly call it exotic, but it's modeled on an English manor house. All right. So it's Longley and it is Marsha's other home. His, well, one of his homes. He has a home in New York and one in Austin and one in D.C. and this one too. Longley. And it's where he keeps his wife. His wife's name, before she married him, was Alice Glass. It's a perfect Bond girl name. And when Marsh met Miss Glass, she was naked, coming out of a swimming pool in Austin, Texas. It sounds about right. And she wasn't quite 20. Did she have a dagger hanging from her head? Probably. I can only hope. A Bowie knife. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> but she'd moved from her humble beginnings in a small Texas town to the capital city, and she was now in the typing pool for the legislature. Now, I've seen Mad Men. <laughs> you know what the typing pool really means. It's where people get promoted. <laughs> yes, and she did. She got promoted. Story goes that one day the married Marsh and Miss Glass were lying in a bed somewhere, and 
He rolls over and looks at her and says, little girl, you are not for Austin, Texas. And he had this terrible habit of just deciding what people's lives were going to be like and then making them that way. And so he sends her off to New York to be educated. At least he followed through. He did. And then he followed through some more and got her pregnant. That's following through. Yes. Now, he was married, and Mrs. Marsh did not take too kindly to him not wanting to be married anymore. And she threatened to have him prosecuted under the Mann Act, which was a big threat back then. It was transporting minors across state lines in order to have sex with them. It was the white slavery thing. Oh, no. And he was like, you do that, you get none of my money. It's a good threat. And she was finally like, okay. But you have to remember, Miss Alice Glass is a small-town Texas girl. And she is now pregnant. Scandalous. They're going to send her off to a home. Oh, no. No, no. Don't underestimate the creativity of Charles Marsh. He knew that her father, a small-town banker who was very well-respected, a president of the bank, in fact, was never going to warm to the idea of an illegitimate child. So what he does is he packs Alice up and sends her to London. While she's there, he has her write her family and say that she has met a dashing young officer. Anything for king and country? Anything for king and country. It wasn't her country, but whatever. So she lies back and thinks of England? Right. Well, he's shipping out for India soon. So they, you know, get married because she falls madly in love and there's a sense of urgency because he's shipping out. Now, this story could seem very thin if all you're getting are these letters. It would seem really fishy. Your daughter's just off and she's married this man. Well, she writes and tells her family she's pregnant, writes and tells them that she's married first obviously she says i want him to meet you all before he ships out my doctors won't let me travel he's going to come alone and so no yes charles hires a man that he's seen in an ad in the saturday evening post to pose as major manners and go and meet her texas family major manners manners it was the name of the shirt on the advertisement god and so this man Puts on his best British accent, goes down to meet the Texas family, then whisk back off to England before shipping out for India. He doesn't really ship out for India, just, you know, that's the story. He goes back to Houston. (laughs) Yeah. And terrible news, he dies fighting some bandits on the border. What a hero. And so now Widow Manners and little Diana Manners, her daughter, Alice Glass and Diana Manners, these are not made up names, well they kind of are, but not really, come back. But they are. But they are come back to America and Marsh resumes care of them and a few years later he marries Alice and adopts his own daughter. Well that's a perfect plan. Yay! So Longley is Alice's place and Alice knows she's gorgeous and Antoinette, one of Marsh's older daughters, says she knew exactly what she was doing. She was a real courtesan. Nice. Yes. Eventually Alice begins an affair. With Doll? With LBJ. <gasps> no. Yes. And that's just gossip. <laughs> so let's get past the gossip. Okay, so she actually tries to begin an affair with Doll. Doll's like, uh, no, you're like my mom. Not really, but he's like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Because of Marsh. And she and, and she gets pissed and kicks him out, and he's no longer allowed to go back to Longley. <laughs> but he does get in with some other high society people. This is very true. Speaking of the bad luck of India. So, the bad luck in India brings us to Miss Mrs. Evelyn Walsh McLean. Now, she's a very interesting woman. 
She always appeared dressed to the teeth, topped off by her trademark oversized round glasses, which gave her an owlish appearance. She never received her guests without her enormous 92 and a half carat hope diamond dangling from a glimmering chain around her neck and jokingly warning onlookers, don't touch it, it's bad luck, you know. No double entendre there. Mm-hmm. Now, they were famous for attracting a wide swath of Washington. Now, her guest lists were regularly reprinted in the Town Talk section of the Washington Post, and her estate was called Friendship. It was a huge palatial spread on Massachusetts Avenue, and it had a ballroom and a theater, ornate gardens, a golf course, greenhouses, and stables. But it was also a known gathering place of fifth columnist appeasers, apologists for Hitler, right-wing Republicans, and Roosevelt haters. So this is exactly the kind of place the doll needs to infiltrate. Mm -hmm. Now, she came into her money when her daddy discovered gold out in Colorado. All right, gossip. (laughs) And she married a man named Ned Beale McLean. Now, after two decades of him carousing and his debauchery being publicly aired in all of the papers... She filed for divorce. But before the papers could even be finalized, he went into a alcoholic stupor, and she had him committed to a mental institution in Maryland. That's the opposite of what usually happens. And she insisted to the end that he was a German spy and a double agent. Convenient. Well, in a Bond movie, he really would be. Maybe he was. Fifth columnist. The Nazis had the Hope Diamond hiding in plain sight. That's an Indiana Jones movie. You're right. You're mixing it up. Sorry. We did that one. And there were people at her parties like her son-in-law, Senator Reynolds, who founded the Vindicators Association and printed the American Vindicator, which was distributed at rallies of the German-American Bund, which is the American Nazi organization. They sound friendly. They were. At one of... McLean's seated dinners, Dahl was invited, and he ended up sitting near this man named Waldrop, who was an unapologetic anti-imperialist. And he was sitting with Waldrop, John Lewis, who was a labor leader, and the evening's honored guest, and Lieutenant Winston Frost, who was a naval hero just back from the Pacific. And so their end of the table had a regal military air, but Dahl didn't give a shit. Because he's a dick. And he turns to him, he says, just why are you trying to create friction between the British and American governments? First, you will answer me. Yes or no. Are you? Yes, I am. So is Goebbels. Carry on. I am against the British now, yesterday, and tomorrow. I am for America first, last, and all the time. I'm afraid of the British. They are clever, and I don't want any more of this Winnie and Franklin. So says Hitler. Carry on. So this created kind of an awkward moment around the table. But Dahl soon discovered that the ruder he was, the more his high society hostesses enjoyed him. No one would suspect such a misbehaving person to be a British spy. I love the way Connett pitched it. She says, Dahl discovered that his unschooled puppy routine, running ragged over the rules of decorum and pissing all over important guests, pleased his hostesses to no end. Now, as he's leaving... Evelyn leans over and says, Be sure to come back here at your regular time next Sunday. We won't count this one. And then she holds up her necklace and declares, Look, here's the Hope Diamond. Look at it. And you will come again, won't you? And I will see you next Sunday, won't I? As he bowed his way out the door, Dahl offered, Do you want me to wear it for good luck until next Sunday? And in the movie, he would say, Is that all you'll be wearing? He would. No, 
thought it was really interesting because Dahl told Marsh in a letter that he thought her fixation on the Hope Diamond symbolized her obsession with private property. And she believed that Roosevelt and the war and the Russians might all be coming for it. So in this quintessential confrontation, which always happens in the movies, they are at a card game, they are at the dinner, and he confronts someone. Inappropriately. Inappropriately. Yes, definitely so. And it's where the villain starts to come out. Well, we've already had our, our fifth columnist. We've already had our anti-imperialist. We've Yes, yes, yes. So who's left? Them. Them. The, Them. the big ones, the big bads. No. The no. shadows. No, not the Nazis. Of course, they're the bad guys, but not in this story. <laughs> you have people like Waldrop, who is for America first, last, and all the time. During this time, you start to have the America First movement. Now, this began during the early 1930s as the Nazis consolidated control over Germany. Our good old friend William Randolph Hearst, that guy again, began touting the slogan America First against <sighs> President Roosevelt. Now, Hearst did not invent the slogan, he actually borrowed it from Woodrow Wilson so he could use it back against the president. <sighs> now, after World War I broke out, Wilson used the motto of America First to define his version of neutrality. The United States should bide its time and husband its resources until the warring powers had, quote, carried the things so far that they must be disposed of. And then America would enter the war and sort out Europe. Humility was a strong, strong component of the American character in the early days. Oh, yeah, only in the early days. So before the United States entered World War II, Hearst's sympathies laid with Germany. He used his publishing empire to gather pro-German editors and writers around him. He did a deal with a German agent for newsreel footage and used a paid agent of the German government as his newspaper correspondent for German matters. So he's running state media, German state media. For the other state. Yeah. And famously, by 1932, Hearst was publishing articles by Adolf Hitler, whom Hertz admired for keeping Germany out of, as Hitler put it in a Hearst paper, the beckoning arms of Bolshevism. So is this like rock, paper, scissors, where it's like Nazis beat commies, but commies... There was an element of that, for sure. Hearst and his compatriots... Confederates. You can call them Confederates. Sure. <laughs> aligned with the transcendent ideas of nationalism that Hitler was pushing forward in Germany, putting... Germany first. Oh, good. Oh, good. They felt that Hitler would soon destroy class-based politics in his country. Heine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Hearst wanted to see something similar like this happen in the United States. Oh, <laughs> the Holocaust centers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of them. So Hearst saw communism everywhere. He felt that Roosevelt was dangerously likely to, quote, allow the international bankers and the other big influence that have gambled with your prosperity to gamble with your politics. He felt that Roosevelt's New Deal was as, quote, un-American to the core and more communistic than communists. Unlike Nazism, which he believed had won a great victory for liberty-loving people. Yeah, they loved loved liberty. That's that's the word. At least they defeated the communists. (laughs) But Hearst saw communism everywhere, not only in the Roosevelt administration, but in college professors, quote, teaching alien doctrines. And among striking union workers in San Francisco, against which his papers encouraged vigilante violence. 
God bless the First Amendment. That's what makes America great. Again. <laughs> so now while Hearst started using the slogan America First, the America First Committee actually began at Yale, where a few students, including Douglas Stewart Jr., son of the vice president of Quaker Oats, began organizing his fellow students in the spring of 1940, along with Gerald Ford. Oh, Jesus. That, wait, no, no, I'm thinking of Henry Ford. What the, Gerald Ford? Yeah, future American president. President Gerald. He just had an aircraft carrier named after That's him. That's very true. He was an American firster? Yeah, and Potter Stewart, future Supreme Court justice. Oh, God. And they drafted a petition stating, we demand that Congress refrain from war, even if England is on the verge of defeat. Oh, yeah, they're definitely the enemy. If you're James Bond, these are definitely not your buddies. Especially if you, your entire goal is to get America to help the British in the war, which is what Dahl's chief mission was. And so this grew and grew, and there were other isolationist anti-war movements. And anti-war sounds nice, <laughs> but you have to kind of think of it in the context. And so by 1940, several of these groups kind of combined, and they formed the National American First Committee. And General Robert Wood who was the CEO of Sears Roebuck, was the chairman. He also had other rich, powerful leaders behind the curtain, such as Jay Hormel. Hormel? Like- yeah, Hormel, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Socialist leader Norman Thomas, Sinclair Lewis, Nobel Prize laureate, and, oh wait, hey, Henry Ford. Oh, good. I knew he'd show up eventually. Yeah, he later had to be kicked off the committee. Was he too extreme for- he was too much of an anti-Semite. <laughs> So they established their chief original kind of planks or principles. The United States must build an impregnable defense for America. No foreign power nor group of powers can successfully attack a prepared America. American democracy can be preserved only by keeping out of the European war. An age short of war weakens national defense at home and threatens to involve America in war abroad. So they were against even aid. Yes, they thought it was just a slippery slope. It was. They did allow once some aid, but they were against military aid. So anything like any kind of reinforcements, any kind of like the Lyndon Lease thing, not okay. Oh, no, 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 no. They fought that in Congress. They testified. This is what's known as being on the wrong side of history. Yes, this is why you never hear about it. So the 1940 election comes about. Spoiler alert, FDR wins. A third time. With Wallace this time. Yes. Wallace, he of doubtable but dubious pedigree, Wallace. So attacks on Roosevelt's motives were especially intense. Congressman Charles Curtis of Nebraska went so far as to assert that FDR's actions stemmed from a lust for power and made him a rival of Stalin, Hitler, and Mussolini. Now this group had some quite strong anti-Semitic tendencies. And really became a factor during the 1940 election, with many American firsters thinking that the American Jewish community favored greater American involvement in the war for selfish reasons. And that selfish! It was, yeah. And that it was using Jewish community influences within the, within the Roosevelt administration to bring this about. So we were not solid enough on our purely isolationist, selfish principles. We needed to draw in some some outward motivation. We needed an enemy, so we decided to be racist, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. Cool. Yeah, someone to pin it on. Cool. So you have the establishment of this kind of shadowy cabal 
No, it really is a shadowy cabal. Like, you look it up in the dictionary. While it has hundreds and thousands of members and donations from so many people, half of those donations are from these wealthy people like Henry Ford that are funding this organization that is anti-Semitic and is trying to work behind the scenes to keep America... Great. First. Yeah. And to keep us out of... The war. This pointless, phony war. Phony war. It's phony. And, you know, they've funded, like you said, the German-American Bund as well. And a lot of them continued to do business with Germany on the basis that the Third Reich would soon dominate all of Europe anyway. Huh. Yeah, they were often called defeatist, which I think is fantastic. It's true. (laughs) So, people like Dahl trafficking with these high society types. This was the ideal place to start whisper campaigns designed to publicly embarrass or discredit these isolationists or defeatists or American firsters. According to BSC protocol, a good rumor should never be traceable to its source. A rumor should be of a kind which is likely to gain in the telling. Particular rumors should be designed to appeal to particular groups, Catholics or ethnic groups such as Czechs and Poles. A particular rumor should have a specific purpose. Rumors are most effective if they can be originated in several different places simultaneously, and in such a way that the shuttle back and forth, which each new report apparently confirming previous ones. It's a bit ingenious, isn't it? You see, there were a slew of henchmen. There were people like Waldrop who were confronted over dinner tables. There were people like Senator Reynolds who worked with the American Vindicator. And then there were people that the BSC directly targeted and got deported. Such as the German agent Kurt Reith, whose father had become very rich as a representative of the Standard Oil Company. And he was making attempts to subvert the American oil industry and avoid blockades put in place against Germany. Now, Reith's unmasking is quite a coup, and it made for very scandalous headlines. Such as, Nazi agent is here on secret mission, seeks oil holdings. Which is horrifying. All right, so now we've got the basic setup of our Bond plot, but we are missing an important part. I mean, we do have the socialite with the Hope Diamond. We need a Bond girl. I've got Bond girls. Doll had Bond girls. His prowess with the ladies. I know he's goofy looking. I know you know what he looks like. I know you've seen the picture on the dust jacket of your dog-eared copy of Matilda. (laughs) That you still read every summer. But in his day, it was pretty cute. Antoinette, Marsh's daughter, recalls, They were having a ball. They were big British war heroes, you know, the toast of the town. And Raul was a very good flirt. Girls were crazy about him. He had all the hostesses eating out of his hands. The ambassador sent him out to parties to see how things were going and sound people out. And it was written of him at the time, Doll, an RAF man whom you may have met here is a dark and broody creature who invented the gremlins and has done some other writing and is much loved by the ladies. Oh my. Antoinette goes on a little later. Girls just fell at Rawls' feet. I think he slept with everybody on the East Coast and the West Coast that had more than $50,000 a year. I love it. Oh my God. She's Texan. <laughs> God love her. Now supposedly one night, he shows up at R Street, Marsh's place, with Eisenhower's girlfriend on his arm. Oh no. 
There was a parade of women, Antoinette said. I think he'd like to show them off to my father. Canet writes, Doll's superiors watched his rake's progress with a grudging admiration. A certain amount of hanky-panky was condoned, especially if it was for a good cause. Down through the ages, the royal courts had relied on pillow talk to discover the way that a king was leaning. And the British embassy was not above resorting to that time-honored tradition. The coyotes are back. The coyotes have returned. Yay. Now, one could say Doll was quite an animal. Would, mwah, you, ag- mwah, mwah. would you agree, Coyotes? Money Penny. <laughs> so, our first Bond girl we shall meet is Millicent Rogers. Now, she is the heiress of a standard oil fortune. Now, she was quite the benefactor. She was a former model, and she presented Doll with a Tiffany gold key to her front door. Oh, well. How's that for a double entendre? <laughs> as well as a gold cigarette case and gold lighter. She was extravagant and very beautiful and notorious for her affairs. Her love life had been making headlines for years. Like her affair with Ian Fleming? Yeah, that one. But she also like married a Swiss count and he ran off with some... It was a whole thing. Lots of gossip there. Now, she opened a home for shell-shocked veterans at her home and took in Navy pilots specifically. And this was in Virginia, and she would bring in four at a time, believing that the beautiful surroundings would help with their rehabilitation. Now, she was very serious about her work, but according to Conant, she had a, quote, delicate constitution and a short attention span. <laughs> and Dahl also had a love interest. And this was a French actress named Annabella. Simply Annabella, one name, that's all. That's all you need. And according to Conant, Annabella was one of the few women that Dahl did not quickly tire of and discard they continued their friendship and their on-again off-again sexual relationship it was a rare exception to a pattern of short tempestuous affairs that even his closest friends at the time like the happily married Antoinette found distressing doll could be incredibly insensitive where women were concerned to the point of utter heartlessness she could recall being shocked by the occasional callousness of his conversation and by the sight of his intended victim across the table white and shaken He could be mean, just awful, she recalled. When he got bored, he could lay into them and be very, very sarcastic. To Ogilvy, he appeared to pursue women more for the sake of sexual conquest than for any real interest. And, quote, when they fell in love with him, as they did a lot, I don't think he was very nice to them. Sounds a little like Bond. He does. Now, (laughs) Annabella was here on asylum from Paris And the night that Paris was liberated, she took to the stage and announced that her home city was free and thanked the Americans for all their help. And Wonderful. Yeah, she was really great. But she remained in love with Gary Cooper, who was married to a devout Catholic and wouldn't get a divorce. But she was very much in love with him for a long, long time. Ah, the tangled webs we Yeah, very difficult. But then we have our... Woman of questionable motives. Mm, the gray Bond girl. Yes. This was the conservative congresswoman in the 40s. Really? Claire Booth Luce. And she was from Connecticut, and she was 13 years older than Rawl. Got himself a cougar. Mm-hmm. And she was married to the editor of Time and Life magazines. She was noted for coining phrases like, no good deed goes unpunished. Really? Yes. And she wrote captions and articles for Vanity Fair, and she went on to write for time and life obviously and do these really kind of famous uh profiles like of general macarthur and things like that and she also wrote the play the women 
which is a very well-known and very often performed play. It's still performed. Mm-hmm. And she was not the only woman in Congress, but she was kind of the only woman that looked like that. <laughs> and so she took a notice of our secret agent man doll. She did. And according to a friend, Fath, she went for Raul because he was handsome and available and a good dinner companion. It was just one of those things, a wartime fling. But the British were very actively and acutely interested in what Mrs. Luce had to say. By 1943, the Luces were in disrepute for their anti, anti-empire attitudes and frequent attacks on Churchill, and they were on a list of enemies who were considered to be a threat to the British Empire. There was a list of enemies? Oh yeah, there I'm was. I'm so curious to see who else is on it. It's not you. Are you sure? I'm positive. Their recent articles about British India, portraying the colonial record as one of brutal oppression, had only fueled the hostilities. They weren't far off. Oh, well. As Rex Benson, Halifax's confidential advisor, noted in his diaries, she was a clever, hard-boiled, ambitious young lady backed by a wrong-thinking husband for whom success as big as newspaper man and money and is probably still the main object of living. The less these two practice the art of statesmanship, the better. But she became a political force, getting herself elected to Congress in 1942 and managing to get a seat on the House Military Affairs Committee. Wow, I cannot believe that. It's amazing. She was, she's pretty, pretty hardcore. She's badass. Yeah. And she's gorgeous. <laughs> also gorgeous. I guess she was worth more than $50,000. <laughs> The British had been deeply shocked by Henry Luce's strident call upon the American people to, quote, assume leadership in the world. Horrifying sentiment if you're British. But but we're the leaders. (laughs) Particularly as it implied the denouement of the British Empire. Look at all these countries we used to own, Queen Elizabeth says at the Olympics. Anyway, they registered Mrs. Luce's threatening tone as they had for some time been pressing the United States for internationalization of their air bases, some of which had become vital crossroads of the sky and were key to the future of foreign trade. She was effectively resisting any of the proposed measures that might limit the possible future expansion of American airways. So she has a specific agenda. Yeah, she is going against what they want. Right. Directly. Yes. And so she must be dealt with. Sitting our man on the inside. Are you really... In her inimitable way, Claire Booth Luce had touched a nerve. The British government urgently needed to negotiate an equitable settlement with the United States, or else lose the lucrative new market of transatlantic trade and travel. If they did not act soon, the air controversy could become potentially explosive, even in a time of war. Otherwise, there will be friction, predicted Honorable W.R.D. Perkins, a conservative member of Parliament. And we might even have another Boston Tea Party. Oh, no. She had succeeded in stirring up strife among the Allies. And she used a phrase in her maiden speech in Congress that caught on with every America first and isolationist and anti-FDR group in the nation. And that phrase was... Globalony. Oh my god, it sounds like something Sarah Palin would say. It was so Sarah Palin. Global baloney. Globalony. And one agent noted, it was a catchword already being ridden to death in the isolationist press. And so Dahl was instructed to romance Claire. That's a hell of an honor. He complained to Fath that he had received some pretty steep orders in his time, but this topped them all. Really? Was she just, like, not into it? According to Fath, Dahl groaned, and I quote, I am all fucked 
out. That goddamn woman has absolutely screwed me from one end of the room to another for three goddamn nights. <laughs> Doesn't sound so bad. Dahl claimed to have gone back to the ambassador that morning and attempted to plead his case. You know, it's a great assignment, but I just can't go on. And the ambassador said, Roll, did you see the Charles Lawton movie of Henry VIII? When Dahl said yes, Halifax continued, Well, do you remember the scene with Henry going into the bedroom with Anne of Cleves? And he turns and says, The things I've done for England. Well, that's what you've got to do. Well, I guess I could never see Bond complaining about this. I'm sure he complained. You just wouldn't see it. So in addition to being all fucked out, there was a small matter of the vice president, the proto-hippie Wallace. Wallace was not the British ideal of an American counterpart. He was unpredictable and his mind could be changed very easily. He was kind of the last person in the room type and he was... As Dahl described him, a lovely man, but too innocent and idealistic for the world. But Dahl did become close to him through Marsh, who was one of his advisors, and even began playing tennis with him. And he thought he really had a unique opportunity with Wallace, but it began to look like it was not even a sneeze of interest once he got fan mail from the First Lady of the United States of America. Eleanor Roosevelt? Yes. She read Gremlins to her grandchildren and found out he was in D.C. and was like, I'm going to invite him for dinner. And so she did. She invited him to dinner with her and the president at the White House. I mean, and- it's it's a great book. <laughs> but Dahl was smart and he kept up correspondence after that dinner. And he even used embassy channels to locate a picture of her son, Elliot, who was in service at the time and get it to her. Like a picture of him, like, out being in the military. You know, with all the fucking and propaganda that he was trying to use, the most effective thing he had was his children's book. It's so not Bond. You have to wonder if it influenced his later life. True. And she wrote back and thanked him for the excellent photograph and extended an invitation for him to come spend, oh, just July 4th at Hyde Park with she and Franklin. Oh, no biggie. Just America's birthday. If I were the first lady of the United States of America, I do have to tell you that I would invite British people to come spend the 4th of July with me. <laughs> and serve them hot dogs. Yes. And Dahl was surprised to find that the Roosevelt compound had a much more rustic, informal atmosphere than he had imagined. At lunch, Miss Roosevelt entertained them with a picnic in the garden, and Crown Princess Martha of Norway was there with her young children, Prince Harold and his two sisters, Princesses Astrid and Ragnild, who were frolicking in the grass. Dahl and his friend Miles roughhoused with the young royals, and when Dahl noticed that a piece of glass was chipped from the rim of a Coca-Cola bottle that Prince Harold was holding, he told him with a perfectly straight face that the president had eaten it. And the future king of Norway was not sure at all that he believed this, and promptly went to check with the president. And Roosevelt said that of course he ate glass every evening, and it made him sharp. He's so clever. Now you could look at Fleming's formula for writing villains and you can see something of that in FDR from the British perspective. He had a habit of exaggerating any kind of physical defect to be a coding for villains. Oh yeah, they always had physical problems. I mean, you even think Blowfield has this big scar across his face. Dahl, who's been through hell physically at this point, he's had all kinds of back surgeries and reconstructive surgeries on his face and head and everything else, was really alarmed to see the president 
in his wheelchair, like being lifted in and out by a secret serviceman. And so with that in mind, this becomes a little bit more interesting because while I can't see FDR as a villain because I'm not William Randolph Hearst (laughs) and I've been to his memorial and wept in front of the dog statue, I can see how you could play it that way. And Dahl later wrote to Marsh, He did not glamour me as I expected he would. His great genius seems to me to be his colossal memory and his egotistical drive. And one of the reasons that Dahl may have been less than thoroughly impressed with FDR was that he seemed to him like, quote, the most tired man I'd ever seen. But they did become close, at least tangentially. There's this really interesting moment when Dahl finds himself alone with the President of the United States of America. Maybe this is even the confrontation, if you look at the formula. If he was the villain. I remember once walking into FDR's little side room before lunch at Hyde Park on a Sunday morning, and he was making martinis, as he always did. And he looked up at me. I was literally nobody to him, a friend of Eleanor's. And he said, I've just had a very interesting cable from Winston. Uh Uh-oh. It was Roosevelt's way of letting Dahl know that he knew that he was reporting back to British intelligence. And part of the game was that neither one of them would acknowledge what they were up to. Of course not. They couldn't. On occasion, the president might drop a hint and say that he was telling him something in order to prepare London, was the verbiage he used. But Dahl came away with the impression that FDR's aim was not to divulge secrets so much as try to prevent serious friction that often threatened to develop between the countries. And so Dahl became this unofficial back channel between Churchill and Roosevelt. Crazy. And so maybe that's the turn. Maybe that's the moment where this man that we have to suspect might be the villain because he has all the classic markings. And he is literally an embodiment of the American interest, which is very complicated and nerve-wracking and the source of our entire plot at this moment. Maybe this is the moment where he turns and he presents himself as an ally. Right, because while FDR could be seen as the villain in our story, it kind of does change here. And, of course, looking through history with retrospect, it's hard to say that he was the villain, even though he may have not always done things in the correct manner. So who's our villain here? We've talked about the America First movement, and you can compare them with something like Spectre, this dark, shadowy organization working in the background, trying to move things along on an international basis. Defeatist. Who say, ah, the Nazis are just going to win anyway. Because we continue to do business with them, but anyway. Right, and even in the Bond novels, Spectre is working for economical gains. It's like he had experience with this kind of thing. So you may wonder, is General Wood the head of Sears and Roebuck and head of the American First Committee the villain? He's not very charismatic. Is Hearst the villain? Yeah, maybe. Maybe, but not in this story. I mean, Citizen Kane was a hell of a movie. (laughs) No, we come to... Henry Ford! Yeah, he is a villain. Different story. He's also not very charismatic. Overtly diabolical. Let's get somebody who looks earnest. So let's talk about an American hero. Okay. Charles Lindbergh. I know that guy. After the crime of the century. The Lindbergh baby was stolen. The Lindbergh family tried to escape the spotlight and they moved to Europe. There, they visited Germany. And liked it. And liked it. Oh, damn. (laughs) While the rest of the world seemed to crumble, Germany struck Lindbergh for its organized vitality. He said, I have never in my life been so conscious of such a directed force. He recalled in his autobiography, it is thrilling when seen. Now he toured the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, 
and became convinced that no power in Europe or the United States could ever win against the German forces. Holy shit, they can have him. Yeah, he felt that war with Germany would not only be bad for the U.S., but also the white races. Oh, Charlie, no! Now, Lindbergh, he said they could have him. Well, Lindbergh did accept a medal from Hermann Göring in the name of the Fuhrer during a visit to Germany in 1938 and, quote, from the New York Times, proudly wore the decoration. (sighs) The New York Times reported, as a token of the esteem Germany holds for Colonel Charles A. Lindbergh, Chancellor Adolf Hitler has bestowed upon him the service cross of the Order of the German Eagle, which is Germany's second highest decoration, outranked only by the Grand Cross. It was bestowed upon Colonel Lindbergh following violent attacks on him and the Soviet-Russian press for opinions he supposedly expressed in England regarding the relative merits of the German and Soviet air fleets. So he got a medal for talking shit? Spread a little German propaganda. Now in 1939, he wrote in Reader's Digest article, right after the war began, that the West can have peace and security only so long as we band together to preserve the most priceless possession, our inheritance of European blood. Now, we've talked a lot about Roosevelt, and Roosevelt and Lindbergh hated each other. Hated each other. Hated each other. And Roosevelt, being the extremely intelligent person that he was with a great memory. And an egotistical drive. Oh, yes, he did. Was asked at a press conference why he did not call up Lindbergh to service because he was a colonel in the Army Air Corps Reserves. Now, Roosevelt was prepared for this question. He knew it was coming. Wait, wait, wait. So the thing that would make me, like, love him most and, like, think he was the greatest is if he indirectly used a story, like, history. If he indirectly used a historical example to couch his answer make it less offensive, but it's absolutely scathing. So he launches into this folksy history lesson. Yes! Roosevelt compared him to the copperheads of the Civil War, northerners who criticized Lincoln's policies and were sympathetic to the South, as well as even the loyalists in the Revolution, quote, appeasers at Valley Forge trying to persuade General Washington to quit and arguing that the British could not be defeated. Bad for morale. And he also, of course, insinuated that he had connections with the Germans. And one of his cabinet men brought up the medal that he received in the name of the Fuhrer. This is the most tactful way of calling someone a traitor that I've ever seen. Now, there are stories, not sure if they're, you know, true, that he tapped Lindenberg's telephone. (laughs) Hoover was around. He was. And the president himself initiated a cooperative venture with Hoover and the FBI in which the White House supplied the Bureau the names and addresses of the letter senders that wrote in about Lindbergh. So this is very interesting to me to read about this because there is no non-biased view of Lindbergh in this situation. I didn't find one. I read through three different books and many, many articles. It's always one side or the other. You either think he is a Nazi anti-Semite, or you think that it was, that was all part of a Roosevelt slash Hoover disinformation campaign. Yeah, just a smear campaign. Well, you can't make him get a medal. That's true, and and have a little more evidence, a little more evidence to go against the the smear campaign. The smear, well, he probably did have a smear campaign, but that it he was, probably deserved yeah. one. <laughs> But this book that I felt was more pro Lindbergh even says this by Wayne Cole. 
Drawing on his experience and observations during four or five years abroad in Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America, Charles Lindbergh provided Americans with a portrait of the European war that differed substantially from the one conceived by the Roosevelt administration and by so-called interventionists in the United States. He did not see the conflict as basically a war for democracy or morality. He was skeptical of the ideology and moral righteousness of the British and French. He conceived of morality and international affairs as relative to time, place, circumstances, and power. His approach was, in effect, more understanding of the Germans. So in this like, pro-Lindbergh book, what I feel is pro-Lindbergh book, he even says that Lindbergh's morality was relative. <laughs> Moral relativism is not necessarily evil. Okay, I'm equivocating. You are equivocating. I'm doing, I'm doing it. But now Lindbergh, with all this, he was asked to be first the head of the American First Committee, which he felt was probably not a good idea. And he instead he kind of became the mouthpiece. The mascot. The mascot. The spokesman. The guy that's revealed when you turn the chair around. The man that appears on the screen asking for $1 million. It is shady that he didn't want to be the head of the committee. Well, he thought that some of his personal baggage, like this, and he did testify in Congress against the Lend-Lease Act. So he thought that that pre- precluded him from being a good head of the committee. We just thought it might just drag it down with some of his baggage. But now General Wood was trying to get Lindbergh to accept the chairmanship. And he said, your patriotism, courage, your intellectual honesty have made you stand out as the head of all the elements that are opposed to our entry into the European conflict. Now, as the spokesman, he began to write, and he began to give speeches, and he was the draw. He was the celebrity endorsement. Exactly. People wanted to go to the rallies to see the American hero, the aviator, Charles Lindbergh. They wanted to wear their Air Lundbergs and go get in line and get his autograph. Yeah. So he wrote in Collier's Letter to Americans, We should all be marching together towards one clear and commonly accepted goal, the independent destiny of America. In a speech at a rally in St. Louis, he said, Here in America, we are prepared to win a victory. Here we can defend our own nation, our own hemisphere. Here we can develop a civilization as great or greater than any the world has ever known. We have every geographical advantage for defense. We have unlimited natural resources. We have the most highly organized industry in the world. And we have another advantage in defending our country. The most important of all, it is unity of purpose. Every true American is ready to fight to preserve our nation. So you mean white people? We'll get there. So you might as well be saying the rest of the world is going to be underwater and we have a submarine. Yeah, or we're going to build Atlantis. Yeah, that's that's where I was going with that. Like, it's very Bond villain-esque. Yes. And so the culmination, we have to have our villain speech where he damns himself, but also lays out his plot, lays out the information. And also has to provide the opposing side with a means for undoing him. Or getting away. And so on September 11th of 1941. Interesting. He had this famous speech in Des Moines. Where all famous speeches are given. So I've got a few choice excerpts. There has been an over-increasing effort to force the United States into the conflict. That effort has been carried on by foreign interest and by a small minority of our own people. But it has been so successful that today our country stands on the verge of war. Personally... I believe there is no better argument against our intervention 
than a study of the causes and developments of the present war. The subterfuge and propaganda that exists in our country is obvious on every side. Tonight, I shall try to pierce through a portion of it to the naked facts which lie beneath. Is he saying fake news? Oh, yes. He's saying fake news in America first? National polls show that when England and France declared war on Germany in 1939, less than 10% of our population favored a similar course for America. But there were various groups of people, here and abroad, whose interests and beliefs necessitated the involvement of the United States in the war. The three most important groups who have been pressing the country towards war are the British, the Jews, and the Roosevelt administration. Damn. Behind these groups, but of lesser importance, are a number of capitalists, anglophiles, and intellectuals who believe that the future of mankind depends on the domination of the British Empire. Add to these the communistic groups who were opposed to intervention until a few weeks ago. So the communists were opposed to intervention until the USSR got involved. Ah. And then they started calling the isolationists and American first all Nazis. Cute. We're back to that rock, paper, scissors. I'm just really not sure which one's worse. First, the British. It is obvious and perfectly understandable that Great Britain wants the United States in the war on her side. England is now in a desperate position. Her population is not large enough and her armies are not strong enough to invade the continent of Europe and win the war she declared against Germany. A defeatist. She's such a defeatist. Even if America entered the war, it is improbable that the Allied armies could invade Europe and overwhelm the Axis powers. Oh, Lindbergh. Instead of agitating for war, the Jewish groups in this country should be opposing it in every possible way. Why? For they will be among the first to feel its consequences. What? Their great, oh, this is good. Their great danger to this country lies in their large ownership and influence in our motion pictures, our press, our radio, and our government. He just said Jew media. Yeah. He just said Jew media. Remember Henry Ford was on the committee. You're right. So Henry Ford wrote that line. No, he was out of the committee by now. He still wrote that line. He mailed it to Lindbergh. The power of the Roosevelt administration depends upon the maintenance of a wartime emergency. The prestige of the Roosevelt administration depends upon the success of Great Britain, to whom the president attached his political future at a time when most people thought that England or France would easily win the war. Ah. We have become involved in the war from practically every standpoint except actual shooting. Only the creation of sufficient incidents yet remains. And you see, the first of these already taking place, according to plan. A plan that was never laid before the American people for their approval. He's calling false flags. He's calling false flags before there's anything. motherfucker needs to have a vlog somewhere. And of course, we talked about this anti-Semitism. Oh, is it going to get worse? Because we already did Jew Media. We really got it. He was a big, he's very interested in eugenics. Okay. And his journal. He wrote in 1939. Oh, God. At least it wasn't in the speech. In which he discusses Jews on board a ship from Europe to America getting seasick. And then imagine the United States taking these Jews in addition to those we already have. There are too many in places like New York already. Few Jews add strength and character to a country, but too many create chaos. And we are getting too many. I, I, Jews are like sprinkles. They're fun and add color when they're distributed nicely across the top of a cake or cookie or some other pastry item. But if you have nothing but sprinkles in a cookie, it crumbles apart and it gets all on your shirt and turns your fingers colors. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Now, he was lambasted for this speech. He lost so much credibility and so did the movement. 
Because of the anti-Semitism? It was a huge part of it. He was also saying Roosevelt was planning these... False flags. False flags, yeah. The Des Moines Register called his speech so intemperate, so unfair, so dangerous in its implications that it cannot but turn many spadefuls in the digging of the grave of his influences in the country. So that's that liberal Des Moines media. I mean, what do the real people of America have to say about it? Well, Hearst Papers even called it an un-American speech. Damn! They hated Roosevelt. Now, the Texas state house was not very happy with this un-American attitude. And as they were passing a resolution in Austin informing the aviator that he was no longer welcome in Texas. <laughs> you got kicked out of Texas. A Texas state representative shouted out, Lindbergh ought to be shipped back to Germany to live with his own people. I kind of love it. It's so, it's like weirdly racist, but it's kind of okay in this context. <laughs> I love that he got kicked out of Texas. You got to do something to get kicked out of Texas. That, my family always went to Texas and never came back. Like whenever we're going through the family tree, she'd be like, my mom would be like, oh, she married a school teacher, but he went to Texas and you know never came back. Now the San Francisco Chronicle said the voice is the voice of Lindbergh, but the words are the words of Hitler. Oof. Okay, there's no. there's our liberal elite media. <laughs> hey, we got her saying it. New York Herald said, I am absolutely certain that Lindbergh is pro-Nazi. Mm. So in this villain speech, the hand is revealed. The idea that being tied to Nazi Germany is undesirable, even for isolationists, becomes very clear. And if you're not for the Allies, you're for the Fuhrer. And this is the moment of reckoning. This is where it really starts to turn. For example, our Bond girl, Claire Booth Luce, has to kind of couch some of the earlier statements she's made. As soon as, you know, war is declared, she's on board and she's like, nope, we've got to be there. We've got to be there. We've got to be in the war and we're going to we're going to fight this out. Her global only thing gets dismissed. She says it was just a moment of dazzle dust. But Doll establishing that backline connection between Churchill and Roosevelt Winnie and Franklin (laughs) keeps them in close ties and whenever December 7th 1941 Pearl Harbor occurs that connection is there and the sentiment towards entering the war has already begun to turn it turns very rapidly right within three days after the attack on Pearl Harbor the American First Committee has dissolved. Now they said our pin- principles were right. Had they been followed, war could have been avoided. Uh huh. No good purpose can now be served by considering what might have been had our objectives been attained. We are at war. Today, though there may be many important subsidiary considerations, the primary objective is not difficult to state. It can be completely defined in one word. And as a twist to our villain moment that we had with Lindbergh, he did rejoin the Army Air Force. And he fought many, many successful and important missions in the Pacific during World War II. And Dahl wrote some books. He did. He also had a series of tragedies and ended up having a very complicated life. He had a son who was struck by an automobile in a pram and developed hydrocephalus. And he and Marsh were instrumental in funding research for a new kind of pump. That would relieve the swelling on his brain. Really? That's very interesting. It's very interesting. He did a great deal of philanthropy. He had a daughter that died. He married an actress named Patricia Neal. And she 
had a brain injury and retired from acting and he kind of pushed her back into into acting before she was ready and had her do like coffee commercials and their marriage ended very abruptly when he promoted a secretary oh at least it wasn't a drive-by like bond he was also very bitter about not being knighted he never became sir Roldal, and he was sure that he needed to be you know james bond refused to be knighted in the books saying he was just a scottish peasant marsh went on to continue funding Dahl and helped him establish a writing career and he would visit Dahl and once when he was in Norway visiting he was struck by the abject poverty that he saw all around him in war-torn Europe and began jumping out of his limousine to hand people hundred dollar bills and so he eventually after giving away money and giving away money decided that his efforts for philanthropy kind of needed to be formalized and institutionalized and he became a total and complete do-gooder and interestingly the young texan he'd groomed became president Lyndon B. johnson unfortunately marsh while trying to help patricia neal and doll reconcile their marriage was bitten by a mosquito and became very ill and had a stroke he lingered for 10 years and LBJ, when he returned to Washington after being sworn in on Air Force One with Kennedy's coffin in the back of the plane, stopped his motorcade on R Street, got down, and went and told Marsh that he'd secured the presidency. But the old man was so far gone that they couldn't even have conversation. And six days after Kennedy's death, when his king-making finally occurred, and the president of the United States was a young man that he'd introduced to politics himself, Marsh died. No one knew where the motorcade stopped or why that momentary diversion on the way to the White House was made. But it was all for the kingmaker. That's a pretty quirky ending. <laughs> so, in our moment of reprieve, we look back at the life accomplishments of all these men and women who became embroiled in this massive worldwide conflict and caper. It's easy to believe that it's just pistache. It's just a camp version of a very serious time. But if you look at these characters and their imaginations and the way that they thought about the world and what they believed was possible with enough ingenuity and dedication, you can see that it crosses the bounds of what we normally believe might be possible into the world of the improbable. And that's the world where James Bond can really exist. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network Redefining Podcasts Society-13.com I like to listen